Hello everyone, Rempfree here, just interjecting before we get started to say that when we recorded this two-part Radiohead special, we were originally going to put both parts behind our Patreon page for those who donate £5 a month or more, but in an incredibly altruistic move on our part, if I don't say so myself, we've decided to give this part you're listening to right now away for free. If you enjoy this and you want to listen to part two, head over to patreon.com slash podcast and donate £5 a month which will give you access to part two alongside in-depth looks at Marilyn Manson's Antichrist Superstar, the second part of Steve's foray into Pink Floyd's The Wall, where we go into the tour and the film and all that yada, jazz, jazz, jazz. At time of recording, the next albums we're going to be looking at for the classic album series are Sepultura's Roots, Weezer's Pinkerton, Blur's Park Life, Queens of the Stone Age's Rated R... And I think after that, we'll probably do Funhouse by the Stooges as well. Uh, so lots of cool stuff to look forward to. And I'll hand over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Stephen Hill, right about now. Hello and welcome to another of our classic album series here on Riot Act. Thank you very much for subscribing. Thank you very much for pledging your money. We very much appreciate that. When I say we, I'm talking about myself, Mr. Stephen Hill. Um, and also today, I mean, it's not really about me so much. It's more about my good friend, Mr. Renfrey Deadman, who has, partic- who has picked today's record. Hello, Renfrey. Goodness me. I, I, I genuinely Sorry, thought man. you were just going to try and do this by yourself. I was like, come no. on, mate. I put a lot of work into this. <laughs> come on. <laughs> <laughs> Renfrey has managed to whittle down uh to a mere a mere 21 pages um of today notes, on an yeah. on an on an album that that doesn't even exist but we'll get into that <laughs> first of all we just want to say thank you very much if you've um subscribed over at our page which is patreon.com forward slash riot act to our five pound tier thank you very much um for joining us uh this is the fourth of our series of of classic albums um i've done two this is Renfrey's second pick and uh if you're buying this podcast individually over on our website which is right act podcast.com um you can go over to that patreon page that number again patreon.com forward slash right act podcast and subscribe for a mere five pound a month and you'll get two of these classic albums every month one of mine and one of renfrey's as i said this is probably the first and only time that we will be reviewing and reevaluating an album that for all intents and purposes doesn't actually exist it's radiohead's 0110 album now you like Radiohead, dear listener. I'm sure that person listening probably likes Radiohead. You've, you're listening to us. You've got good taste. I'm assuming that you like Radiohead. And you're probably scratching your head and going, well, I like Radiohead and I've got their entire back catalogue, but I don't remember an album called 0110. Renfrey. Hello. Come on in. You've picked this album. Where and what exactly is it? Well, this and why is, is it a classic? Well, this is going to... Uh, really we're going to have to build up to the 0110 stuff and in order to do that we need to look at incom- uh so oh god in computer dearie me i've kind of i've kind of spoilt it already by saying that we need to look at okay computer and in rainbows separately and then we can bring the two together at the end and um mm. i will show you exactly what i mean uh, about this fan theory that has been generated through all sorts of very interesting speculation on various Reddit uh, Reddit message boards and Radiohead uh, message boards and so on and so forth. Um, but it seems like a pretty amazing um, opportunity to do these two Radiohead records anyway, both of which 
actually are my number one and my number two Radiohead record. I would put OK Computer mm. number one uh, in Rainbows number two. That's not the case with you, although you do have a Radiohead uh, album on your list as well. So we, we will be returning to them at some point. Well, I, I think it's probably worth saying right at the top that if, if Riot Act was one living, breathing, singular organism, then um, there are bands that uh, that would kind of define that. And I think um, there are bands that I really love that you quite like. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are bands that you really love that I quite, you know, I'm a, a big Pearl Jam fan, but they're your favourite mm-hmm. band. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Pink Floyd. You didn't even realise they were capable of selling out stadiums. Um <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not going to live that down, am I? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, and, um, you know, but there are bands like Deftones, uh, Nick Cave, Nine Inch Nails, Tool. Tool, yeah. um, Deftones. Have I said Deftones You already? did say Deftones, but that's I say, Well, so good that they're worth <laughs> putting in there twice. Um, Dillinger Escape Plan, mm-hmm, Converge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, bands that we both love with, I would say, pretty much an equal amount of intensity. And for me, I would say, although I don't think either of us have ever been able to go on an audio format and and describe quite the level and intense level of our love for Radiohead, I feel that Radiohead are one of those bands that although we feel about bits and bobs of their back catalogue quite differently, I feel that the you and I love them with a similar intensity. Almost certainly, yeah. And mm. I feel, as you just said, because we haven't had the opportunity to really discuss them, I feel like I've really gone in on this in quite a bit. Oh, way. yeah. So uh, let's start off then uh, with the legendary OK Computer, released on the 21st of May, 1997. I believe the working title for OK Computer was Zeros and Ones. Yes, which, which will come up again later. Will come up mm. a fair bit, yeah. At this point in time, as we sit here talking about OK Computer, it's pretty much considered one of the greatest albums of all time by most people. To, uh, the, who... to the point where people get fed up of people like us going... Oh, isn't OK Computer pretty much one of the greatest records of all time? Unfortunately, yeah. the reason why people like us do that is because the evidence is compelling that it is one mm. of the greatest records of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Water is wet. The sun rises in the wherever it rises and <laughs> sets on the other side of that. I can't remember which one it is. I'm not, I'm not much of a geographical I'm sure, mind. I think it rises in the east. Doesn't, oh, fuck yeah, it. I've probably got, I anyway, got that wrong. It does rise, though, for sure. And <laughs> OK Computer is brilliant like there's absolutely no getting away from it um probably worth a little bit but not a lot Mm. of talking about the build-up because spoiler alert and i'm sure most people know this i do have a radio album on my list which we'll be coming back to um probably a long time from now at this point we don't want to do them too close together uh but my radio album came out before okay computer Mm -hmm. which narrows it down to well, one. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's picking Pablo, honey, are they? <laughs> Let's be honest. Nobody's picking Pablo, honey. So it kind of narrows it down to, to one album. Um, but uh, we should just talk about, you know, what Radiohead kind of were uh, at the point of OK Computer's inception and release. Um, thoughts on pre-OK Computer Radiohead? Well, Pablo, honey, I think, released 93 was released into a world uh, where Britpop was beginning to become a thing, to dominate mm. the world, more or less. Um, oh, did it well, dominate we were the world? Still in, we were still in the, the, the grunge era. 
at this point, really. Yeah, 1993, Kurt Cobain's still alive. And the big hit, Creep, which has become a kind of millstone around their neck to a certain, for a little bit. I mean, I don't really feel like it is anymore. I mean, no, I, said to you, uh, I, said, I said to you before, you know, there was a um, some terrible clickbait thing that had the worst, the bands that suck the most ever. And they had Radiohead on it, the morons. Mm. Mm. And um, their rationale for radio had been on there was like they've only got one song creep can you name another song which is a bit like going it's absurd <laughs> so martin scorsese only made one film goodfellas what else or what about taxi driver mate I, oh well there is that i i mean i absolutely do absurd i completely agree with you there is only one thing i will say against that and and like i'm doing this more of as a devil's advocate thing really because you know i completely agree with you uh, looking at Radiohead on Spotify, Creep is their biggest song by a massive margin. Uh, Creep has, oh God, 514, uh, 514 million plays. Mm -hmm. uh, is that right? Yeah, it is. Isn't it? Uh, yeah. Probably, yeah. Uh, whereas the next song down with Karma Police, which makes sense, which is from OK Computer, which has 204 million yeah but um here's my riposte to that if you don't mind yeah go for it Remfrey. um creep uh, is is their biggest single in america people have been saying about creep being their biggest song for a lot longer than um than spotify has been around people yep. have been saying that for a long time i mean they probably had five out five or six albums out by the time spotify was even a thing mm -hmm. so although that's fair that people want to listen to that song in the uk creep is actually their one two three four fifth sixth highest uh highest charting single mm -hmm. so their highest charting single is is actually um paranoid android uh mm -hmm. it's then no surprises mm -hmm. uh which is also um matched by there there uh we then have street spirit and pyramid song both reaching number five and creep reached number seven Karma Police also reached number eight. So it's actually not their biggest single in this country. Mm -hmm. I would also argue that Creep is a song that can easily be implanted into playlists and putting mm -hmm. songs onto playlists on Spotify is a massive, massive way for them to get traction. Um, yeah. And songs later on in their career, uh, th there are definitely exceptions, but less so. Um, Radiohead yeah. seem to sort of form albums that, worked as a whole more and so if you took songs out of them they worked less so i mean you know karma police still works on its own and there mm -hmm. are songs but i'd f it would feel weird hearing say i don't know the national anthem lucky lucky yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you couldn't really put that on on a yeah it, you're right it would feel weird i think even a song like eh, i was about to say my iron lung which is a, a more sort of contemporary sounding sort of like a kind of easier type of song which is just a bit weird but yeah i mean that probably that probably could but i i don't know so anyway um people thought of radiohead even post the bends people kind of thought of radiohead as the band that did that song creep you know oh yeah um i am skirting over the bends a little bit feel free to to chuck in your thoughts on the bends and where where they went with it i'm going to probably not do that so much right now what i would like to do actually is concentrate on the first four releases of radiohead's career just briefly because <clears throat> i think when you look back on it now particularly it is pretty staggering the mm. jump 
from each record. We've discussed um, recently about uh, the jump from Code Orange's Forever to Underneath, for example. Um, and those jumps are pretty rare with bands. It's 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 pretty rare that a band manages to have one of those major leaps in progression uh, in their career. I would argue that with the first four Radiohead albums, they made that large leap in progress um, with their first, first four records. Pablo Honey was a very kind of... It's it's by far the most dated uh, Radiohead Definitely. record. Yeah, yeah, it very sure. much sounds like it was released in 1993. It's not a bad record at all. There's some great songs on Pablo Honey. Stop Whispering, You, uh, anybody Everybody can play, wants to play guitar. Anyone can play guitar. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's some. It's a it's a good album. It's a solid album, but it very much sounds of its time. The Benz hugely refined all of that and just became. If Pablo Honey was a decent Britpop record, I I almost feel it's reductive to call the Benz a, a Britpop record even. But if you were to call it a Britpop record, it'd be the one of the best. Probably. I think it's yeah. I, I I have never ever considered them anything to do with Britpop at all. Not I'm even on Pablo honest. Honey. Nope. Hmm. I think that's got much more to do with um, American alternative rock than it has um, Britpop. There's an yeah, there's an argument either way, I suppose. Um, OK Computer was another stylistic leap, which I'll go into, and then and Kid A. I mean, they alienated a huge uh, portion of their fan base by jumping to Kid A, where they were using. I mean, they barely picked up their guitars on Kid A. By the sounds yeah. of it, it was a lot of electronic <laughs> yeah. programming and so on and so I, forth. I, I was one of those people, which I'm sure we'll talk. We'll get to in a minute. Uh, at the, I struggled at, with Kid A at the time. I was as well. I now view it as well. I actually just said to you before we recorded this record, it's actually now my third favorite Radiohead record, and I think it's incredible. But at the time, I just was baffled by it. Really, I didn't. I didn't yeah, understand it. But those stylistic leaps show a band who just were never willing to uh stop uh they were never they were never willing to stay still is what i mean by that mm -hmm. um okay computer was released in a year where i mean 1997 was a very confused odd year for music i would say yeah um Britpop was transitioning into it was about uh uh collapse it was the beginning of the creative decline of Britpop, I think you can definitely argue we had Be Here Now, oh, which is at least. Yes. Uh, I mean, when you read some of the the kind of um, the post Radiohead or see some of the things that became like the post OK Computer influences, you you get to a point where Travis was saying how much they liked OK Computer and and you know the man who became this huge record, which won a load of Brit awards, um, basically by kind of taking sort of somber pop music and stripping it of all originality and kind of intensity <laughs> and you know the the kind of the the groundbreaking stuff that Radiohead did and just made it sort of car advert music it's interesting the same probably you could you could pin that on Coldplay as well on it's, parachutes. In, it's interesting that you mentioned Travis because they released their debut album Good Feeling in 1997 uh, which you could argue marks a sort of ground zero for mainstream guitar music becoming pretty dull and ploddy for quite a long time yeah um, very long time. so um, the mainstream world was just obsessed with the Spice Girls 
uh, in the pop world. I mean, it was Spice Girls, Spice Girls, Spice Girls. 1996's Spice remained in the charts for most of 1997, and they followed it up at the end of 1997 as well with Spice World. Uh, Urban Hymns was released by The Verve, but that proved to be their final album until they came back. Um, oh, God, like... Mm, 10, 11 years later with Fourth, Long time later, yeah. Which was crap. Um, <clears throat> I mean, what else is there? Like, there was there was guitar music around. Uh, Kerrang! were doing a pretty good job of bringing guitar bands to the forefront. The likes of Bush, Three Colours Red, Reef, Deftones, Placebo, Foo Fighters, um, Kerrang! Go on. Well, can I just say, just mm -hmm. to jump in, this album, I mean, we'll talk about when we first heard the record, but I bought this album the day it came out and uh, it came out the same day as The Colour and the Shape by the Foo Fighters, which now, do I buy Radiohead or do I buy Foo Fighters? Seems like a pretty easy choice for me. Um, but at the time, with basically one Foo Fighters album that I loved and one Radio Howard album that I loved, I went into that shop and I thought long and hard about which album I bought mm. with the, with, you know, the, the, the kind of being a student and being mm. like, I've got enough money for one album. I did buy okay computer. Mm. Um, but I, I think, you know, <laughs> a lot of it was on the strength of the single. So it was basically monkey wrench versus parallel Android. And that's a uh, pretty tough, that's a pretty tough decision. Oh, that's itself. Personally, that's easy for me. That's, that, I mean, that's it is paranoid Android all the way for me. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, when I say it's, when I say it's a tough decision, what I mean is they're both really good songs. Oh, yeah, yeah, One yeah, of them's yeah. a... Re but then one of them's a really good song and the other one's Paranoid Android. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the colour... I, I, you know, I don't want to talk about the colour and shape too much, but I, I fucking love that record and, and early Foo Fighters, I think, are brilliant. I don't think you share that opinion. But, you know, Kerrang! awarded Colour and Shape the album of the year um, that year. But also, let's not forget, we were discussing this in the Marilyn Manson special... Um, Metal Hammer, I don't know what was going on with Metal Hammer here. If you recall, they awarded Feeder's Polythene uh, album of the year in 1997. It is a great record, but it's pretty far removed from anything that I would conceivably call metal, isn't uh, it? Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, of course. It's bonkers. So really, it was a really, um, it was a transitional period, I would say, mm -hmm. for music. We were about to... Um, get a lot of dance music and electronic this electronic music craze was about to start i think the prodigy had a lot to do with that obviously the fat of the land came out this year um so but uh it was about to turn into something and certainly in mainstream circles i think guitar music was going to be shunned for a little while you know but into this world mm -hmm. comes okay computer mm. which is this grand operatic uh, diatribe against rampant consumerism, social alienation, emotional isolation, and political malaise. It presciently predicted technology's ability to paradoxically make us feel more connected and yet more isolated at the same time than ever before. A theme which arguably is even more pertinent in 2020 than it was in 1997. Um, recurring lyrical themes include transport, Technology, insanity, death, modern British life, globalisation and anti-capitalism. Um, it might be worth pointing out at this point that Tom York, when initially conceiving of OK Computer, said that he wanted to make a positive album, which is quite amusing when you consider a lot of those themes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I would say that OK Computer was a guitar album. 
especially if you compare it to what they did with Kid A three years later. But those guitars were complemented by a widely expanded palette of instrumentation that included an electric piano, mellotron, cello, glockenspiel, and electronic effects. And the combination of all those elements produced a densely layered sound that hypothesized I am, our ambition might be our ultimate downfall. Um, it captured this paranoid fear of so-called progress, quote unquote, um, which is perfectly encapsulated four years earlier by Jeff Goldblum's character in Jurassic Park when he said, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Nicely done, Renfrey. Adding in a little bit of Jeff Goldblum <laughs> to the podcast. Happy days doing that. Well, I, I, I think that quote is really pertinent to what this record is about. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. I think OK Computer initiated a stylistic shift in British rock music, away from Britpop, definitely. I mean, when Be Here Now came out three months later, it sounded very dated, um, towards a more kind of melancholic, atmospheric, alternative rock that became far more prevalent in the next decade. You're about to say mm. something, Steve. Well, I was going to say, if I may, um, <clears throat> what has what sort of been uh, written in the history books when you look back at the kind of the annals of, of British music is that Nebworth in the summer of 1996, so, you know, that would be 10 months before this record was released, Nebworth became the ultimate coke-fueled, lavish blowout of of Britpop. And it's kind of, it's, if not, if not its creative death rattle, then certainly it's kind of commercial peak. And after such a, you know, such a huge party, um, it's tempting to wonder who was going to provide the soundtrack for the come down and the hangover. And I think <laughs> in a lot of ways, Radiohead brought about um, that change by being in this place. I mean, not only was it is it a fucking incredible record, as we will discuss, and not only is it sort of thematically all those things that you said, I feel like after what would it have been th probably three and a half four years of varying degrees of quality in the Britpop scene mm. um but most of it being kind of happy clappy hooray 1960s mm. austin powers fun time vibes um you've immediately conjured to mind cast which upsets me exactly yeah, yeah. yeah i mean that's yeah that's the cast the casts and the blue tones and the northern uproars and and those kind of bands the you know ocean color scene mm. the day we caught the train it's all very hopeful and i think uh weirdly radiohead kind of preempted not just what we were talking about with social media but where the next decade was about to go because you know post grunge i feel like there was a little bit of you know that the, the kind of hope came back to britain i was talking about this the other day actually um about how 1996 felt like the last time that england and britain felt totally united and excited by everything that it was doing you know oasis played nebworth train spotting came out um euro 96 happened we were a few months away from tony blair winning this kind of landslide um election and bring it and putting labor new labor into power which you know, it just felt like all the time, all the time, all the time, there was this build of positivity. And I think Radiohead were there just at the beginning to maybe not kind of bring about the crash, but to kind of preempt the crash that would happen sort of 
post 9-11 really I, I think the 90s kind of ended on September the 11th 2001 um, and you know music had been kind of uh, drifting toward that yeah. for a little while but Radiohead for me were pretty much the first band who artistically and succinctly prefaced that I agree with all of that bar one point, which I would say I think the um, I think the last time Britain felt connected was uh, the Olympics that we hosted here. It was only for one very brief summer, but obviously mm. all of the shit going on before the Olympics, we were like, it's going to be a fucking disaster. And then there was that incredible opening ceremony. And then there was a real f- sense of connection throughout that summer. Um, was, was it 2012? Yeah. yeah, maybe. 2012, um, yeah. But, yeah, that's a good point. I've never. <clears throat> I mean, that's true. It did only last for three weeks. But it, I, mean, but I think, yeah, it, it was a and far and it was, shorter period of time. Yeah, and yeah. it was purely down to one event, that being the Olympics. Whereas I think if you look at, you know, the the sort of the, the, the you know they call it nineteen eighty nine was sort of the second summer of love, but it was quite underground. And I feel like from there to about nineteen ninety six, stuff started to build mm. and build and build, and you had bands were massive you know the sort of the success of radiohead and then blur and even you know when you look back to some hollywood films you've got stuff like supergrass being played in the background of clueless which is a massive american film you know, uh, radio radiohead featured prominently on clueless yeah 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 and um you know and and they're in radio in romeo and juliet baz lerman's radio romeo and juliet as well, yeah, we'll be talking um, about that. obviously oasis on the front cover of variety magazine you know and it felt like you know, like I say, the 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 British actors at the time and Train Spotting, Shallow Grave, and you know Guy Ritchie, Lockstock, all that kind of stuff started to happen, and people started to look at Britain again as a creative, you know, viable, vibrant, exciting place. Um, and I think that lasted a lot longer than just one summer. And I think yeah. it also was down to a myriad group of factors rather than just the Olympics. Like the Olympics were the Olympics. Everyone went, hooray, the Olympics for a few months. Yes. Whereas Euro 96 and Gaza and, you know, all that stuff happening as well. Like that just felt like a, a an exciting time for all of us, no matter what you're into. It felt like everybody was sort of connected. I do agree that it was um, spread across lots of aspects of culture. Whereas um, for the Olympics, it was just this one event. Um, I think it extended into the Paralympics as well, but it was one event that was uniting everyone. It wasn't. Whereas, you know, back in 96, 97, people were looking to the UK for, as you say, films, music, um, fashion, like loads of things. Mm -hmm. It felt like that we were. Uh, Damien Hurst was big. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it had its peak, I think, probably was that summer of 1996 nebworth um being the kind of the big blowout you know all of those bands getting together from the prodigy and the manic street preachers and oasis you know obviously all underneath oasis mm. um and that massive massive blowout that they had mm. uh and i mean i think if you watch enough if you watch any documentaries about oasis they say we really should have left it and just split up after that because where can you go and i guess the answer to where you go is okay computer not that oasis could have made that record (laughs) that is where you go no no oasis absolutely could not have made this record 
Um, so, okay, let's get into the album itself. Um, I think a really important important part to start with is the collaboration with Nigel Godridge, uh, their producer. Um, this was the first time that Radiohead had decided to self-produce a record, but they brought Nigel Godridge in to help them with that as well. And it is a collaboration which has lasted um, for every single Radiohead record since. He's been characterised as Radiohead's sixth member, an allusion to George Martin's nickname as the fifth Beatle. And I think Godrich's um, relationship with Radiohead is easily as important as George Martin's relationship with the Beatles. Absolutely, for sure, yeah. Easily. No doubt. Uh, the album itself laid the groundwork for their more experimental work later on. Um, it had very, very low sales expectations from the record company EMI. They deemed it a uncommercial record and difficult to market, um, which I think is fair. Do you think? I mean, obviously, obviously we are aware that that <laughs> isn't what happened. But I think that is if you if you were presented with that record, how as a record company, how do you think you would market that? Yes, well, uh, a record companies are kind of notoriously not very good at um, at predicting what's about to happen. They True. can only really not even predict what's happening. They can just see in front of their faces what is happening. Uh -huh. Let's get some more of them. So I guess when, when uh, having um, OK Computer kind of put before them, uh, hoping they were going to get, I don't know, The Great Escape by Blur, uh, or maybe just another version of Pablo Honey with maybe one uh, with another creep or mm. another street spirit mm -hmm. to uh, or another high and dry mm -hmm. to to put out. Um, and Radio to say no, no, actually this kind of six minute long mad three part angry nineties electro rock day in the life is going to be our first single um well the guitar probably sorry. would shit yourself yeah yeah guitarist ed brian said at the time that they had a lot of people surrounding them um saying if you released the bends part two you you know you're gonna sell hundreds and thousands millions of copies of records and that just spurred them on even more to do something to, to well to not do that to not release the bends part two um Obviously, we know now that EMI were totally wrong. OK Computer reached number one on the UK albums chart. It debuted, didn't do as well as a, in America. It debuted at number 21 on the Billboard 200. Um, but it was the highest album entry that they had had on the US charts at the time. Um, and obviously, we know that OK Computer, for the most part, received massive critical claim and has been cited by listeners, critics and musicians as one of the greatest albums of all time. Um, in... Just before making the record, Radiohead were really burnt out from touring for the Benz and Pablo Honey. They hadn't really had much of a break between the two records. Drummer Philip Selway said there was an awful lot of soul searching on the Benz. To do that again on another album would be excruciatingly boring. <laughs> um, and then Johnny Greenwood said uh, that the only concepts that they had going in for the album was that they wanted to record it away from the city and that they wanted to record it themselves, something that up to this point they hadn't attempted. The label gave them a £100,000 budget for recording equipment. 
and they used that budget to bring in a lot of these different instruments as i said i said before mellotron the electric piano all these different things and to the point where uh, a lot of the time radiohead had these songs and they knew that they wanted to have them on the album but it got to a point where they just weren't sure what member of the band was going to play what instrument it became a real like smorgasbord of all these different mu musical instruments and strange gadgets and stuff so the album was recorded over a period of nine months in total with intermittent breaks and in july 1996 radiohead entered their canned applause studio which is basically a converted shed near Didcot in Oxfordshire. Um, the members worked with nearly equal roles in the production and formation of the music, um, although Ed O'Brien did say that Tom York was still quite firmly the loudest voice, uh, which makes a lot of sense, I think. Nigel Godrich's role as co-producer was part collaborator and part managerial outsider. He said that Radiohead need to have another person outside their unit especially when they're all playing together. So to say when the take goes well, I take up the slack when people aren't taking responsibility. The term producing a record means taking responsibility for the record. It's my job to ensure that they get their ideas across, which I think um, they did pretty damn successfully on this record, even if Tom York wanted to make a, a positive album. Um, yeah. That obviously changed over the course of those nine months. But um, uh I think I think those ideas came across very, very satisfactorily indeed. Um, they found recording at Canned Applause to be an unsatisfactory experience. By the time that they left Canned Applause, they'd only they'd nearly completed four songs, but progress hadn't really been going very well. Those four songs were Electioneering, No Surprises, Subterranean, Homesick Alien and The Tourist. Tom York attributed its proximity to the band members' houses as being the issue. Um, so that they couldn't concentrate on what they were doing. Johnny Greenwood attributed it to the lack of dining and bathroom facilities. Yeah. Um, so rock stars, eh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're your bloody rock stars with your toilet. You have to have a toilet. Pampered um, bastards. So at the label's request, they asked them to take a break, break from recording and embark on a 13-date American tour in 1996, opening for Alanis Morissette. Nice. Would go to. <laughs> and they... Yeah, so would I. Fuck me. Especially around that time. And um, I think part of what helped them, and something that they have done a lot subsequently, is Radiohead have never really been afraid to play... Mm, unfinished songs live to try them out and i think the songs were molded and changed over the course of um that tour and it gave them a bit of a kick up the arse and realized that they had some really good material here they just needed to sort of form it in some way and make it coherent um so once they finished that tour they resumed recording in September 96 at St. Catherine's Court, which is a historic mansion near Bath owned by actress Jane Seymour. Do you know about that? Uh, no, I mean, I know who Jane Seymour is. She's the, well, I don't know. If you're unfamiliar with Jane Seymour, she's the, um, she's the lead Bond girl in Live and Let Die. Isn't she? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Tom York was convinced that the mansion was haunted. Of course he was. Um, but but the band made extensive 
the band made extensive use of the different rooms and the acoustics in the house. So, for example, the vocals on Exit Music for a Film feature natural reverberation from one of the rooms, uh, which was achieved by um, recording on a stone staircase. Um, so that reverb you hear in that song is it's not an effect it's actually the reverb from the staircase that's amazing and letdown was recorded in a ballroom at three in the morning um which wow which you, you can really imagine with that song um o'brien estimated that 80 percent of the album was recorded live uh, and he said, I hate doing overdubs because it just doesn't feel natural. Something special happens when you're playing live. A lot of it is just looking at one another and knowing that there are four other people making it happen. Many of Tom York's vocals were first takes because uh, he felt that if he made other attempts, he would start to think about it and it would sound really lame. I think this is an interesting point to pick up on because a criticism which is so often labelled at Radiohead is that they are a band for the mind rather than the heart i.e they're clinical they're cold they're calculated they're emotionless and they require a very intellectual mind to understand or a degree in Mm. fucking music to understand or something like that um what do you think of that steve i've never understood that criticism nope or that or that kind of that opinion i've never ever understood it it feels very very strange to me it feels like um such a surface level critique or criticism of that band um i agree the idea that the idea that um they are in some way i mean even you know i to me i think i think it boils down to some sort of um quite lazy and trite comparison and connection to prog rock um, particularly around this time uh, where prog rock was seen as this hoity-toity, um, very, very showy, very long-winded, very kind of masturbatory uh, music genre, which said nothing but said it really, really loudly. To me, Radiohead have really have nothing to do with prog rock at all. Ah. I mean, the, the comparisons with um, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon on mm-hmm. this record mm-hmm. i you know i kind of get it a little bit mm. but i don't really i don't really that's not really a bullseye comparison to me absolutely that's not. not that's not a bullseye comparison i think they have much more in common with well post-rock um and mm. kind of odds electronic uh new you know post new wave maybe not new wave is not the right thing because new wave is quite happy and, and jo- mm-hmm. jo- jaunty but kind of post-punk maybe a little bit more alternative rock um it's a a kind of melding a menage of all those things i mean we'll talk probably talk about bristolian trip hop and and dub rhythms within both of the records that we're going to talk about quite extensively today i would say again you know that's not a very showy type of music and i think that's plays a that's a huge impact of you know dub music um and an influence from dub music on on these records which those are not showy genres you know those are not showy um uh kind of flighty sounding technically technical wizardry genres you know Mm -hmm. just because radiohead are throwing a lot of things into the pot i don't really know where that kind of i can understand the kind of super serious austere um 
not got much of a sense of humor critique like a little bit depressing i can understand that a bit but the the you know the heartless cold clinical nature of radiohead i think it is like that kind of links them to prog rock mm. i think is a you know a, a million miles away is really really lazy mm-hmm. i think um part of what's so great about radiohead is they are a band for the heart and the mind um the mm. emotion that uh, it primarily comes from tom york but it definitely comes from the music as well and i think them recording the record live has so much to do with that or predominantly recording it live i should say with as few overdubs as possible um the yes the comparison to pink floyd and 70s prog rock is very interesting radiohead hate that comparison they hate it um i do i mean i was aware of that but i mean that's not why i'm saying i i i agree with them that i I know they hate it, but I also think they're probably right to hate it. Mm. Probably in the same way as to me, it's like, well, it's not really. I was going to say it's like Deftones saying we hate being called a new metal band. It's mm. probably more like I'm sure Radiohead get, would hate being called a, a Britpop band, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which is probably a better comparison, really. But I can definitely understand why they hate being called a prog rock band it, because it, there's, there's not anything particularly showy yeah. about any of this no really no i mean don't get me wrong these these i've actually been like attempting to play a couple of these songs just to sort of get an idea of like if you try to play um songs by artists i think it gives you just an even more insightful look into the way that songs are formed and how they make them and stuff like that and um radiohead songs are much harder to play than they sound like they just just because of the weird scales and shit like that that they use they are they they Mm. are odd songs to play um but yes i agree none of them are showy at all um i think johnny greenwood's got a little bit of guitar hero about him when they do let him do i mean i think of sort of my iron lung or the end of paranoid android even the sort of last little bit of airbag as well i think johnny greenwood does do a bit of that stuff but no but at a time when guitar solos were not cool yes i've been learning or attempting to learn how to play body snatches which is on in rainbows and there's some pretty yeah. crazy guitar histrionic stuff on that as well um i don't think it's when the rest of the band let him i think it's when he wants to uh, i yeah. i uh, just to make that subtle distinction i i but um but he is absolutely capable of doing that stuff if he wants to. I just think most of the time he doesn't want to. Um, so Radiohead um, returned to canned applause in October to, for rehearsals and completed most of the OK Computer uh, their sessions. Um, by Christmas, they had narrowed the track listing down to 14 songs. Uh, they spent two weeks ordering the track list. And wow. I think you'll agree, Steve, that it is a pretty beautifully sequenced album. It's a very unusually sequenced album. Yes, this is what makes this whole podcast and project and our kind of final part in this so interesting, I think. And so <clears throat> um, when I had bits where it felt like there were, there were there were parts where we'll get to this in the end, where yeah. it was like this album is sequenced so perfectly mm. that there were some nails down a chalkboard um, mm. feelings that I got when we get to um, zero one ten. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, in terms of 
the sort of the perfectly told story of this record um i'm looking at the track listing now and seeing how else it could fit like weirdly what i've been actually something i've been doing uh today was rearranging the crusade by trivium which is an album with lots of flaws and um that is a lot it's a lot easier to go well let's re rejig this and see how we can make it sound better mm, mm. uh than it is to get an album which is already perfect and go well this is great as it is mm. maybe if i switch it around it'll sound better mm, no you won't mm. you'll just ruin it mm, mm. um and i can't really imagine any way in which you could touch any two songs and change their track listing on this and make it sound anything other than a bit worse neither can i um i mean it just seems like such a it the flow of it is so perfect it is not a um traditional um uh album structure at all um i mean one example of many that i could point out would be you having this weird fitter happier track this sort of two minute computerized voice just uh, having a modern day sort of diatribe against um all sorts of things transport death and so on and so forth and it's usually tracks like that that will sort of intro an album um they did try that with fitter happier but it was just sort of seen as being far too off-putting a thing to start with um, well they they did actually start with fitter happier and their live show for a they little did. bit yeah yeah yeah, yeah. as as the so intro music they're obviously yeah. kind of yeah as a sort of intro music mm. so they obviously gave it a go mm. um fit happier into lucky as well that was what it was on the on the live show mm. Mm. which is you know well, we'll t- i mean i saw radiohead on this tour so i'm sure we'll talk mm. about that in we a will bit, but yeah. yeah um but yes go on sorry yeah fit happier weird to be putting in halfway through yeah it's a very unusual thing to do certainly at that time um but um but yeah i think the, the sequencing of this record is is wonderful and it's something that we'll definitely come back to later um we talk a lot about styles and influences and bands taking from a narrow pool of influences and bands taking from a wide um, pool of influences. Uh, the influences that have the, the, the things that have influenced this album are pretty striking, really. Tom York said that the starting point for the record was the incredibly dense and terrifying sound of Bitches Brew the 1970 avant-garde jazz fusion album by Miles Davis. Uh, He described the sound of Bitches Brew to Q as it was building something up and watching it fall apart. That's the beauty of it. It was at the core of what we were trying to do with OK Computer, which seems pretty astute to me, I think. Mm. Have you heard Bitches Brew? I have, yeah. Yeah. What do you think of it? It's bonkers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I bought Kind of Blue was the first Miles Davis album that I bought. Yeah, same. Um, And I was like, oh, this is... What a nice record. Like, I can see why people like <laughs> yeah. this guy. And then when you get to his kind of later years, and I mean, especially if you go after it, when you get to the sort of the hip hop, you know, when he was sort of uh, doing stuff with hip hop artists. Yeah. Yeah. You can see why people um, sort of eulogize that guy so yeah. much. And Bitches Brew is fucking bananas. A fascinating artist in the same way, the same sort of transition as Scott Walker had, you know. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah, 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 yeah. Miles Davis is just fascinating. Um, they drew further inspiration from Enio Morricone, the Beach Boys, DJ Shadow, Pixies, Porter's Head, and Can. 
Uh, but Tom York also specifically identified I'll Wear It Proudly by Elvis Costello, Fall On Me by R.E.M., Dress by P.J. Harvey, and A Day in the Life by The Beatles as influences on the songwriting. That's pretty mm-hmm. damn eclectic, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, what do you think he was talking about when he was saying A Day in the Life by The Beatles? Oh, I wonder. Um, <laughs> although although there are other Beatles songs which uh, uh, have that paranoid Android collaboration as well, but we'll get into that in a bit. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Greenwood described OK Computer as being a product of being in love with all of those brilliant records and influences, trying to recreate them and missing. And I think that is exactly right. I mean, that's actually how you make great art. You try quite often you try to recreate something that you love fail but then come up with something else that's totally different um yeah because i i can see the influence of all of those um all of those artists that i've just named but i don't think i don't think this sounds like a pixies record i don't think it sounds like no. a portshead record i don't think it sounds like a beach boys record i don't think it sounds you like can a definitely hear, you can definitely hear all of those things mm-hmm. in it though mm-hmm. for Absolutely. sure yeah yeah absolutely um oh I'd, let's talk about the um 1970s progressive rock thing just a little bit more critics suggested a stylistic debt to 1970s progressive rock an influence that radiohead have disavowed according to andy green and rolling stone radiohead were collectively hostile to 70s progressive rock but that didn't stop them from reinventing prog from scratch on okay computer particularly on the six and a half minute paranoid android i mean we've talked about that a little bit already um Critics in the British and American press generally agreed that the album was a landmark and would have far-reaching impact and importance and that its experimentalism made it a challenging listen. According to Tim Footman, not since 1967 with the release of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band has so many major critics agreed immediately, not only on an album's merits but on its long-term significance and its ability to encapsulate a particular point in history. Uh... Yeah, I think that's really cool. I mean, I was going to say, actually, you do know, um, you probably, we might get to this in a bit, but a year after the album came out, Q Magazine did a poll of the best albums ever. And this was voted number one. Really? A year, a year, a year later. Yeah. I mean, you think nowadays how, like both you and I know how hard it is to get somebody to say, this is a 10 in mm. Metal Hammer mm. without mm. being a cunt and throwing anyone under the bus. But you can't really... It takes a lot to get a 10 in Metal Hammer. It takes a lot to get, um, you know, someone to turn around straight away and go, this is a classic. This has put this band in the, you know, the the higher echelons of popular music and it belongs alongside the Beatles and the Smiths and the Sex Pistols and, you know, whoever else you want to chuck in there who are massively and massively influential. But back then people did just accept it straight away yeah i mean it's pretty mad to be going like this is the the most sort of significant record since sergeant peppers yeah exactly it's an an crazy crazy thing to be saying um to be voted the best album ever made a year after it was released yeah um but yeah but i guess this is the thing like i always say when you know you know yeah yeah and i remember hearing it the first time and i wouldn't say i knew to that extent first time but i was like fucking hell this is going to take some some beating getting used to mm. and some beating yeah mm, mm. yeah i mean uh, the one prescient um uh quote was nick kent in mojo he said that others may end up selling more 
but in 20 years' time, I'm betting OK Computer will be seen as the key record of 1997, the one to take rock forward instead of artfully revamping images and song structures from an earlier era. You know, which is, that's pretty much what happened. I mean, I think OK Computer had yep. a massive effect on that. And bearing in mind, I mean, we talked about the sort of staleness of what was happening around this time as well. Like, there, there, were, there were really, really good records released in 1997, but there was also a lot of disappointing stuff released in 97. I think looking back at it, despite stuff like this and um, Colour and the Shape and, you know, uh, Album of the Year was released this year, wasn't it? Faith No More, you know, yep. and stuff like that. The, really, if you look back on it, I don't think you can honestly hand on heart say that 1997 was a great year for music, you know. No, um, probably not. There were, however, some dissenting voices. Um... I feel like we should start a um, little offshoot uh, in these classic albums where we discuss how Robert Crisco um, got it so wrong. Um, it's funny that Robert Crisco has considered this a, a very, very prominent music critic. And it was uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall that he um, he didn't like at all, wasn't it? That we were talking yep. about, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> well, it turns out he doesn't like OK Computer all that much either. Uh, Robert Criscow from The Village Voice said, Radiohead immersed York's vocals in enough electronic marginal distinction to feed a coal town for a month and to compensate for how soulless the songs are, resulting in arid art rock. Well, I would suggest, based off the two um, podcasts we've done mm. on quite challenging records, mm. uh, well, I think all of them have been challenging, but particularly dense and challenging records i would suggest that robert crisco is the sort of person who subscribes to classic rock magazine and <laughs> just listens to mott the hoople i bet he likes dinosaur pilot um <laughs> i bet he does well he might do yeah it probably seems good probably seem really complicated for him dinosaur pilot. <laughs> um we will return to robert crisco when we talk about in rainbows as well uh so uh oh, no he didn't, he didn't. <laughs> fucking hell it's just unbelievable um but you know for the it, most of the most people just fucking loved this record and thought it was an absolute masterpiece you know when it came out um there's another important collaboration which started around this time which is important to point out i think um and that's the working relationship radio had with stanley donwood who is the artist who has worked on um every Radiohead release ever since all their promotional material he's worked on Tom York's solo albums and the Atoms for Peace project that Tom York did as well um technically the My Iron Lung single was the f the first collaboration with Donwood but I believe it's okay OK Compute was the first album where they collaborated and it's it's where yeah. the, it's where it started to blossom I think that collaboration you know so I think that's fair to point out at this point York, who has a degree in fine art, collaborates alongside Donwood to create uh, the images on um, all of their stuff, Tom York. Um, but he he's often credited under monikers such as Dr. Chock, Chocky, or as he was credited for this album, The White Chocolate Farm. Nice. And people say Radiohead don't have a sense of humour. Exactly. Um, it's a collaboration that has drawn parallels with Pink Floyd's association with Storm Ferguson. Yeah, which I mean, I can see that. Yeah, 
I mean, uh, it's hard for me to. I, I I get that because and some of that artwork is absolutely brilliant. But mm-hmm. when I think of Pink Floyd and artwork, or, or when I think of Pink Floyd and an artist, I tend to think of Gerald Scarf just because of the stuff that he did with the wall on the wall. Yeah. Although that is a very short-lived, uh, I, 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 to me, a far more significant, although far shorter-lived. Um, relationship yeah i think i think the the but yeah i get that yeah the the comparison is just the, the long-term collaboration and how much they work together to make the stuff interestingly just as a side note when we did the pink floyd special you asked if there was another artist that you could think of that had um as much effect on the music uh of, of the the album as gerald scarf did on pink floyd's the wall and neither myself nor our guest matt could at the time I think it's probably a stretch to say that Don would have affected the music on OK Computer. But on later albums, for example, in Rainbows, Don Wood was actually in the studio with the band and creating images whilst the band were working on music. So, so maybe, so maybe, yeah, maybe that's a bit of a minor correction that we need to make. Yeah, there. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Didn't know that. Let's go into some individual songs, shall we, Steve? Oh, let's. Yes. Um, I have tons of information on literally every single song on this record. So I'm going to be quite charitable and I'm going to say to you, what song would you like to talk about? Well, since it was the first single uh, and it made such a massive impact, I think we should probably start with Paranoid Android, to be honest. Lovely. Okay. Um, Paranoid Android, I remember, I mean, as I said, purchasing the record it was basically monkey wrench versus paranoid android um because i really loved the first foo fighters album and obviously i love the bends i loved the bends more than i liked the first foo fighters album and i liked paranoid android more than i liked monkey wrench so it was a kind of done deal really mm-hmm. um but paranoid android was such a i heard it on radio one <clears throat> the first time i heard it right I heard it on Radio 1 for the first time and then I heard it, uh, I saw the video on MTV. Mm-hmm. And both times, I just remember thinking, I cannot really contemplate what this is. Because you didn't get, you know, this is like this is BBC Radio 1 prime Britpop era. You did not get seven minute near or six and a half minute long singles being played at that time by anybody it just was not a thing the spice girls weren't doing it the pop bands weren't doing it and the so-called alternative bands who were much more really much more indebted to punk and you know obviously (laughs) watering down and reappropriating the beatles you did not get a six and a half minute long song i knew about bohemian rhapsody at this point the sort of music i listened to i'd gone in on pink floyd a little bit and I knew Bohemian Rhapsody. And the comparison between, you know, this is a 90s version of Bohemian Rhapsody. That was what a lot of people were saying. Yeah. And for me, like, I, I always thought Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody is one of the first sort of rock songs that I ever heard and really loved. Mm-hmm. Um, Queen Greatest Hits was probably the first tape that my mum bought me Queen Greatest Hits on tape. And it's probably the first time I really loved, the, remember loving the sound of an electric guitar uh so they were and that song was a massive song into getting me into rock music so the idea of that was um was just manna from heaven from me and that it was so weird 
and that it had so many different parts and so many different themes and and ends with and doesn't forget to end with like basically a big mosh part you know that don't dug dug like one of the great one of the great riffs ever yeah absolutely unbelievable guitar riff like when people talk about our radiohead it's all like sort of chin strokey minimalist nonsense like let's see fucking tom morello would want to have written that riff from oh fuck yeah yeah well unbelievable cave-in were kind of accused of borrowing that riff weren't they when they um um, wrote inspire on antenna um it's not exactly the same but it's undoubtedly pretty it's pretty reminiscent yeah uh the tale of it is different but other than that it's quite reminiscent uh yeah the bohemian rhapsody comparisons um was not something that the band particularly liked surprise surprise um Ed O'Brien denies that they wrote a Bohemian Rhapsody for the 90s and Johnny Greenwood considers it too tense and simple to rival Queen's song. Um, it's weird to call Paranoid Android a simple song. Um, it, I understand what he means. Uh, I think that is going back to the the it's not showy thing that we were talking about. I think that's what he means by it being simple. Um, there's nothing kind of again the histrionics and the operatic nature of bohemian rhapsody are not present on uh on Android. Android. absolutely for yep. me on reflection it has got far more to do with a day in the life it's interesting it it's interesting you say in the day in the life because they actually um said that the idea was to combine so it's three different songs which essentially put together into one song. There's three different sections. All three of those different sections were written by different members of the band as well. Um, And they just sort of plumped them together. And the song that they had in mind when doing it wasn't A Day in the Life, as a matter of fact, by the Beatles. It was another Beatles song, though. Um, Happiness is a Warm Gun from the White Album. Really? Apparently so, yeah. I... I see it in a day in the life a lot more than I see it in happiness as a warm gun. I re-listened to happiness as a warm gun for this. And I was like, yeah, okay. But that's, that's yeah, what they I, claim. I don't, I don't, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's got two parts, isn't it? Happiness is a yeah. warm gun. It's yeah. just a couple of separate bits. This, yeah. this might be a good point to say that I, we were talking about Radiohead and, you know, how they're perceived to not have a sense of humor. I think from doing this, an awful lot of what Radiohead say has to be taken tongue in cheek, to be honest. And I feel like very, very often journalists have gone in there and either taken something that they said tongue in cheek for granted or they've just put it into print without kind of considering, oh, it's meant to be tongue in cheek. And when you read something in print, that um sarcasm doesn't necessarily translate and i feel like an awful lot of very obsessive fans have taken some things that have been said in jest in interviews and gone this is a thing you know yeah i mean we'll probably talk about meeting people is easy a little bit oh, later yeah. on, which is oh, the yeah. uh the tour document documentary that came out uh, about a year after the album uh, which features radiohead playing you know these songs and basically going on tour and losing their minds mm-hmm. while mm-hmm. the success of OK Computer happened around them. And some of the journalists that they talk to uh, make you ashamed to be a music journalist. They really do. Uh, there's yeah. there's one point where I think it's Ed O'Brien says um, someone asked him a question about Tom York and he goes, "Oh, um, 
uh, yeah, he hates life or something. And he's like, he doesn't really. He's like, you can put that if you want though. You, you, yeah, yeah, go on, yeah, you can put that. And you can tell he's just flippantly said something really sarcastically and then gone, fuck it, use it, who cares? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure there is a lot of that going on. I think there's loads of it. And whether it's, um, you know, whether it's on purpose from the journalist's point of view or not is probably down to individual cases. But I, it's definitely my belief because sometimes I read some of this stuff, I'm like, you know not so much the happiness is a warm gun thing but we'll come to things definitely which i'm like "Ah, i don't i think that was said in jest um it's pretty well known that uh paranoid android was named after marvin the paranoid android from douglas adams brilliant series of books the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and the radio series are you a douglas adams fan of interest no i've seen the film with with um Sam Rockwell. That's why and Martin Freeman. That's why you're not a film fan because the film is fucking atrocious. But um, yeah, it's I pretty bad. That. Fucking love Hitchhiker's Guide. It's incredible. Is the album not named after that as well? <laughs> ah, yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I was going to say what's less well known is that the title's derived from Hitchhiker's Guide as well. Um, but obviously, you've pipped me to it. Um, so the character Seyford Beeblebrox speaks this phrase: "Okay, computer, I want full manual control now." So um that's where the titles derive from uh mm-hmm. it also became the working title for the b-side paolo alto we'll talk about b-sides a little bit in a sec yeah um uh you mentioned earlier that there was a working title of ones and zeros uh which is a reference to the binor- binary numeral system um and something that we will be discussing again later in part two but there was another um, working title. And again, I'm like, is this something that they said in jest? Although it is mentioned in the Meeting People's Easy uh, film. Uh, the, one of the working titles supposedly was Your Home May Be at Risk If You Do Not Keep Up Payments. Yes, uh, that's something Tom York also said on the uh, on, on that documentary to yeah, a journalist. To Matt Pinfield, yeah. Yeah, and uh, then he goes, it didn't seem like it was very catchy. <laughs> Well, quite, yeah. I can't even imagine if they'd actually called that album this. Uh, uh, your home may be at risk if you do not keep up payments, but there you go. It sort of fits in with the theme, I guess. Um, there's an elusive 14-minute version of Paranoid and Droid, which apparently contains a long organ interlude performed by Johnny Greenwood. Supposedly, this extent. Right. Supposedly, this extended version was played on the Alanis Morissette tour in September 1996. Now, I can't find it anywhere, uh, and to be honest with you, I question its existence entirely. A because I can't find it, and B because I feel even a band as ballsy as Radiohead surely wouldn't have the Hutzpah to perform an unreleased 14-minute song during a support slot. Yeah, they'd get 40 minutes, so you're looking at... Probably half your set. (laughs) Yeah, about half your set. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends how much disdain they had for Alanis Morissette's audience. (laughs) I think if a 14-minute version of Paranoid Android did exist, I think it would have been found by now for reasons, again, which we'll go into later. But um, I just, I don't believe it exists. Um, the, The band definitely did play Paranoid Android, during the Alanis Morissette tour, I have heard those um, versions, and there are there are like seven eight minute versions, and there are versions with Johnny Greenwood doing an organ solo, and where the ending is totally different, and it's in a slightly different order, and all this kind of thing. But fourteen minute version, I just there's a lot of talk about it. I just don't believe it exists at all. Um, do I want to say anything else about Paranoid Android? One more thing about Paranoid Android. 
The song's lyrics tie in with a number of themes common on OK Computer, including insanity, violence, slogans and political objection to capitalism. York's lyrics were based on an unpleasant experience at a Los Angeles bar during which he was surrounded by strangers high on cocaine. In particular, York was frightened by a woman who became violent after someone spilled a drink on her. York characterised the woman as inhuman and said there was a look in this woman's eyes that I'd never seen before anywhere. The woman inspired the line, kicking, squealing, Gucci little piggy in the song's second section. I thought that was quite Which, nice. Uh, I used to have a t-shirt with that written on the back. Oh, of course you did, you antagonistic <laughs> fuck. <I did. laughs> uh, where would you like to go next, song-wise? Oh, wow. um, I guess we should... Do you want to do the singles or do you just want to go through the, the it, album as I think, we go, I guess? I think it's vital that we do the singles, isn't it? Um, yeah, I've got, okay. I've got Karma Police here. Do you want to go into Yeah, that? I think Karma Police. I mean, just to... Uh, I first heard or saw the video for karma police which is a you know a brilliant brilliant video uh i i'd like to talk about the video actually could you describe the video to people who may not have seen it please um basically someone getting run over by a car <laughs> i mean you've massively simplified it but yes yeah yeah <laughs> i mean i i i i should have watched it in the in the sort of run-up to this but i haven't it's been a long time since i've seen it but it's um, basic so there's a car driving along a sort of empty english country road and you see the perspective um uh it's an unseen driver and the camera's sort of in the middle of the car and it keeps um swirling round through 180 degrees and tom york's at the back of the car sort of singing along to the lyrics and it keeps chasing this guy and chasing this guy and that that's all the video does it really doesn't weirdly doesn't even really um correlate with the music all that much and then there's a bit of a twist in the video where uh yeah spoiler alert where the man then the man who's being chased then gets a can of petrol um pours it onto the road and then lights it on fire and the car um goes up in flames basically Mm. and then when the camera turns around to see where tom york was seated he's no longer in the car that's basically the video it was um, directed by Jonathan Glazer, who had pitched the concept of the video to Marilyn Manson months earlier, who disliked it and turned it down. Wow. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah. Interesting. Too violent for Manson, was it? Well, I don't know if that's the reason. I, I mean, I doubt it, bearing in mind some of the stuff Manson's done. Yeah. But he obviously, <laughs> just, he obviously just didn't like it. I mean... Oh, should we assume that that was a, that would have been a video for a song from Antichrist Superstar? Tourniquet, maybe. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe. Who knows? But yeah, um, if yeah, feels like quite a cool Manson concept. But I guess it's not hmm. it's not shocky, which is sort of what he was doing at the time. I don't know, but I can imagine Manson yeah. doing it. Yeah, maybe it feels maybe a little bit later on in his career because it's not as yeah yeah it's a bit subtler, isn't it, than Antichrist Superstar, which is quite like, you know, a a big fat two middle fingered roar in your face, which yeah. um, which that isn't. Although actually thinking about the Tourniquet video, that's not. I think that would have been quite good, mm. personally. Yeah. Um, do you want to uh have you ever picked up on the similarities between that and another tom york fronted song rabbit in your headlights by uncle and yes the video to that which yes. is a bloke getting basically battered in a tunnel um i think we've spoken about it before on a right on a writer's, a writer's review, review. Yep. yeah 
um they feel like quite two quite good companion pieces i think i agree yeah 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 absolutely like um, don't drink drive <laughs> and uh was just <laughs> and, and was released just a year after this mm. uh as well um so in terms of the song itself, um, the title comes from a band catchphrase that they used to use on tour. Whenever someone was behaving in a particularly shitty way, we'd say the karma police will catch up with him sooner or later, uh, says Johnny. It's not a revenge thing. It's just about being happy with your own behavior. Um, it was debuted on the Alanis Morissette tom- tour. Uh, tom sang the line, this is what you'll get an octave higher than he does on the album. Um I've heard some of those versions and I think it sounds fucking great actually. Really? Uh yeah, I don't prefer it necessarily, but it sounds really really good. Um and Ed O'Brien was the one who originally suggested they do a song based on the catchphrase. Uh the song includes the line he buzzes like a fridge, he's like a detuned radio, a reference to the distracting metaphorical background noise York calls fridge buzz. Uh and also um uh, apparently due to his dislike of the music that was being played on US radio as well when they were off on tour. Ah, oh, right, right. Yes, okay, that makes mm. sense. That concept of fridge buzz, I think sums the record up quite well in a weird way. Yeah. It is that kind of constant noise and constant chatter that you can't escape from and can't get away from, which is the reason why I wanted to mention that. But yeah, US radio fridge buzz, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, more Beatles references, the chord progression... Um, that uh begins the song follows uh, owes an audible debt to the beatles song sexy sadie um it's the first six seconds of the song again from the white album so they were clearly looking at the white album a lot for this mm. uh although the radiohead version is the sex, sexy sadie is pretty upbeat um the chords are almost the same except for the tail of the riff the the last the fourth bar is different but the radiohead version is far slower and more despondent as you'd probably imagine yeah i wouldn't have have got that unless you said it to be honest i didn't get it um and then um i read about it and compared the two and i was like oh yeah it, it is actually for the first three bars it is actually the same chord sequence and then it changes at the end but yeah yeah it is actually the same chords um, uh, where is, oh, do you want to continue? I was going to say the video. Uh, mm. The first time I saw the video was when I went to go and see A at the your favorite uh, band, the, better the than Red, Carl Luna. Yeah, at the, at the uh, yeah yeah <laughs> um, at the Alley Cat in Reading. Oh, uh, there nice. was a bar downstairs, so like a pool hall bar, and the MTV on, and and they put on uh, and, and the Karma Police video came on, and I was like, wow, this is because I think Radiohead make fucking brilliant videos. I mean. Just a spoiler, somebody once, I think uh, my mate Dave actually tweeted us and said, can you do some sort of special about your favourite music videos ever? I've been, again, fairly vocal that my favourite music video ever is Just by Radiohead. That mm. is my favourite music That's video. Brilliant. It's fucking brilliant. Yeah. And they just make great, great music videos. Yeah. Um, thinking about that, no one really, ugh, I can't even, Rammstein Deutschland was probably the last time I really paid that much attention to a music video. Yeah. It doesn't seem it's kind of a lost art a little bit, but Radiohead were, were great at doing them. And I do remember sitting there being like, this is fucking awesome. And, you know, especially since it's such a melancholic, slow building, almost quite morose song, um, that very brutal video. And it does feel like a really threatening, brutal video. Uh, was quite a nice um counterpoint to it i thought it worked really well a hundred percent yeah absolutely 
Um, I feel like Radiohead are, or, or the collaborators who work with Radiohead to do their videos are incredibly good at coming up with a brilliant central idea. Yep. Um, even though Radiohead are a band that do or did or do have access to money, um, they always seem to concentrate on idea first. That like I can't think of many of their videos which would require ridiculous budgets necessarily. Mm. Um, and I think that's quite refreshing from a band who could afford to do those big budget lavish videos, you know, Tom York with like people in bikinis dancing behind him. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they don't, but they don't do that. And I, and I, I love them all the more for it. Um, I feel like we should talk about no surprises, although I'm going to ask you to not discuss the video yet until we go on to meeting people is easy. If that's, that's okay. That's fine. Well, actually you're do so you're not doing this in chronological order as they were released then, because I believe the next single to be released from it was lucky. Uh, lucky was a, lucky was released even before the album came out well yeah but as a single um it was released in december 1997 well in france it was anyway fuck it let's do lucky because <laughs> uh, i know obviously uh lucky was the one i, I had the help album from oh did you uh it's a really good record actually help so um I, I, if you don't mind me taking this one for no, a second for Renfrew, basically um in 1995, uh, the charity War Childs um, wanted to make an album to help stricken areas in Bosnia and Herzegovina and uh, brought in the biggest British and Irish artists of the time uh, to come in and spend a day recording one song. So it was kind of like they were meant to come in with a song and just record. Um, or actually, the whole, I think, but I believe actually the whole album was recorded in one day. The entire mm. thing was kind of recorded in a single on it on a single day it may well have been i don't have to check that but um but yeah basically um paul mccartney paul weller oasis blur manic street preachers um stone roses on there although actually i'm sure the stone roses didn't come in and re-record love spreads although that is on there uh yes wade charlatans levelers there's a lot of people on there television are on there as well um and um yeah it's basically it's 20 songs and some of them are really good. Um, Fade Away by Oasis and Friends is on there. The Smoking Mojo Filters, which is basically everyone who is involved doing a cover of Come Together by the Beatles, ah. is pretty good. Um, Manuscript Preacher's cover of Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head is really nice. Um, and Radiohead, like I said, Love Spreads by Stone Roses is an absolute banger, but I think that's the original, so I don't know what, where that's come from. Um, but Radiohead came in and they recorded a version of Lucky, which um, apparently they were sound checking during their Japanese tour while they were That's off right. touring the Benz. Yeah, so um, Ed O'Brien was fiddling around with his pedal board and just mucking about in sound check in, in Japan. Um, and the that high-pitched chiming sound that starts the song and continues through the verses was hit upon completely and utterly by accident uh, when Ed O'Brien was fiddling around with some delay effects and he just started sort of idly strumming the guitar above the guitar neck um, and it just produced that sort of really weird, chilling, high-pitched sound which plays throughout. And from there, the song was kind of born and created. Um, the band has said they consider Lucky a happy song. 
or at least as happy as they are <laughs> capable of creating. <laughs> I mean, I suppose Tom York does say it's going to be a glorious day, but <laughs> I don't think Lucky is a happy song at all, really. No, not at all. Um, Radiohead recorded Lucky in five hours. It's mad, that, isn't it? Yep, yep. Um, Lucky, I mean, b- b- well, we've not said it yet. Lucky's one of the best songs on this record, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah I, think, well, I, f- I find it really difficult to pick. I actually find it very difficult to pick actual highlights from this record. Oh, OK. But Lucky, but but Lucky is brilliant. Yeah. I would. I mean, as a, as a live opener, I mean, again, I don't want to kind of spoil it because I'm probably going to talk about Lucky a little bit more when we talk about um, seeing them live around this time. Yeah. But uh, it is not a very instantaneous um, song. I don't think not it's one of the ones where i mean hearing it before so i would have been the first song from okay computer that i ever heard because it came out a long time before paranoid android and i was like uh yeah mm, right no yeah and it wasn't until i heard the album again as you say taking it out of the the sort of the confines of the record and letting it kind of sit on its own it's one of the ones that as you mentioned, I don't think it really fits on a playlist. Like it didn't really fit on the help album, which right. was quite a lot of jaunty, like, you know, happy, um, quite instant sounding nice music. Uh, whereas lucky is, is not that, um, <laughs> well, the band seemed to think it is, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not like them going into the studio with Supergrass. Yeah. Hey, we're going to write one of the happy songs like you guys write. <laughs> Coming out with this, uh, but it's a but yeah, it is a great it's a great song, a really great song. I was thinking about this, um, having listened to this record again and again and again over the past few weeks. Lucky is track eleven on a twelve-track album. How many songs can you think of that are of the quality of Lucky? which is just chucked on as the penultimate song of an album. I mean, that, like, character, usually that's where bands chuck their crappiest material. You know, they try to have a strong start. Uh, it might dip a bit in the middle. And like by track 9, 10, 11, you, you're noticing quite a big dip in a lot of albums, and then you have a big hurrah at the end. Again, this album doesn't have a big hurrah at the end either. But as a penultimate track often it's it's a not a, a weak song that's put on as a penultimate track but in lucky's case mm. i i genuinely think it's one of the best songs on the record i think it's brilliant yeah i mean looking at it i think yeah they're all really they're all so good but yeah, yeah lucky is lucky is a very very good song obviously um i think when you get albums of this quality and i think there are plenty of albums well, not plenty there's a lot there's there's a lot of 10 out of 10 albums in the world and those albums tend to have great track 11s i think this is just another one i think yeah if you're talking if you're comparing this to your bog standard album fair enough you know no but i think if you're talking about the absolute best records ever 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 then you know anything on these two lists with of our two lists i think we would probably go yeah even by the end this is great i know i would yeah, fair enough. Um, oh, I might have to look at my list just to confirm that. But that may, yeah, that may. Well, well it shouldn't be fucking case. be on your list if you don't feel like that about it. Renfrew, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> no, that's fair enough. Um, 
the the plan for Lucky, so as you mentioned, it did appear on the Help compilation, but the plan was actually to try and remix and re-record the track for OK Computer. And they tried several attempts, but they just found that they couldn't improve on it. So it's actually the same version on OK Computer as is on the Help compilation. I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> much to the delight of Radiohead, I'm sure, critics have compared the lead guitar work in the chorus to Pink Floyd. But to be mm. fair, well, it's quite Gilmore-esque. Yeah, I think it is. That's the one. They're that's the they're the one band who I can see a little bit of from the sort of prog world is Pink Floyd. Yeah, they don't like that, but yeah. No, well, you know, but I can see it. Yeah, I can see it for sure. I think they're silly to deny it. Just yeah. makes me believe it even more. <laughs> but then, but then, I, but then I I also wonder: Are they being tongue in cheek when they say that sort of stuff? I don't know. But yeah, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Um, but yeah, Lucky is brilliant, uh, yeah. which I guess brings us to the fourth single. No surprises mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, or the third single, if you're not French, um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> which came out in January 1998. Uh, this of all the singles is probably, I have to say, my least favorite of the four. I agree. Uh, it might even be my least favorite song on the entire record, Renfrey yes it's a bit of an odd one isn't it because it's an incredibly simple song on quite a complex album um mm. so it's a bit of a weird one um i mean let's go into the song itself and how it came to be tom introduced this song to his bandmates and members of rem on the rem monster tour uh it was the 3rd of august 1995 in oslo norway and they were all gathered in a dressing room the lyrics have been changed since then, but they originally told the story of a man who has become fed up with the way things are working for him and is having problems with his girlfriend. Two lines from the early version were, he was sick of her excuses to not take off her dress when bleeding in the bathroom. Probably a good thing they changed those lyrics, I think. Yeah, they'd be getting cancelled now, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, well yeah. that's just not... Mm, uh, yeah. um, Defy... <laughs> Defining what the song's actually about is actually quite tricky, I think. On the surface, the lyrics seem to portray um, a suicide or an unfulfilling life, dissatisfaction with contemporary social and political order. But when York spoke of the song, he didn't strictly allude to any of those themes um, and described it instead as a fucked up nursery rhyme, which I think is pretty, pretty accurate, really. Well, it, it famously... Um was uh was featured on an episode of the royal family where they sing the do 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 oh right do 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 to their baby to, to send it to sleep as if you know to kind of a hammer home the point but also to sort of take as a joke as if like haha as if you'd play your child radio head, you know your yeah, baby yeah, 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 radio head yeah. um but yeah it 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 does it does have a little bit of that vibe to it um it's a very simple aiming, song yeah well they were aiming apparently it says they were aiming for a mood similar to pet sounds yes 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 which again uh, i can right i i can sort of understand how that um oh actually there's a particular song oh, i've forgotten what it is now which is really annoying um hopefully i'll come back to that uh oh no it's wouldn't it be nice wouldn't it be nice by the beach song uh, by the beach boys was the, the particular song that they were sort of trying to 
emulate. I mean, in this context, you could probably say that No Surprises sounds like the Beach Boys on Ketamine. Um, but uh, because obviously music critics like comparing songs to drugs all the time. Um, it, I think that comparison makes a little bit more sense when you uh, know that the song was actually recorded at a faster tempo, but then slowed down when Tom put his vocal tracks on it. So it might have sounded a bit more jaunty before. I think if it was, if you imagine that riff played a bit faster, it's suddenly a lot jauntier. And yeah, so yeah, probably. I could, yeah, I can imagine it would be. I mean, it couldn't get much less jaunty than the version no. we have now. I think Sun could cover it and make it sound more <laughs> like a fucking pop song than the version <laughs> that we get. To be honest, yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, possibly. But but. I think when you when you consider that it was initially recorded at a faster tempo, I can kind of understand where that Beach Boys thing comes from. It's certainly a very sweet melody. Um, I think what makes what gives this song its radioheadness and its quote unquote complexity is the difference between the sweet melody and the 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 quite um, the 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 vocal the the not the vocals the lyrics like. The quite despondent lyrics i think yes that's, that's where the radio headness comes in to that song. yeah you, you you could make this song yeah i guess if you put some really like i love you baby lyrics over the top of it then it might actually be yeah it could be quite a sweet song yeah um although i mean you, you've probably seen the footage from Kay burley and the sky news team talking about it uh discussing the video um uh, have you seen that on Sky? I don't think when I it, have. When it came out? I don't okay. think I have. Well, I mean, you said you wanted to skip talking about the music video too much. Um, Until meeting people is easy, yeah. Yeah. Um, but there is there was a bit of them showing the music video on Sky and they were saying, oh, you know, Radiohead have been... It's been said that Radiohead are the greatest band in the world and blah, blah, blah. And doing basically what they discuss quite quite regularly on meeting people is easy which is radiohead uh were became critical darlings on okay computer and they were well aware that because of that the mainstream media were going to take pot shots at them and mm. turn on them and british the british media would turn on them and i think they were well aware that that was going to happen um i don't didn't really happen until kid a came out in the music press so much but certainly that kind of um they became the poster children for sort of dour, miserable music. Oh God, isn't it miserable listening to Radiohead or all that kind of shit that people came out with because they, you know, they were the the poster children for that like mm. grumpy, miserable music. And there's uh, a bit you can probably find it on YouTube of Kay Burley saying, "Oh, isn't this miserable?" This showing the No Surprises video, and they're going, "Oh, isn't it miserable? Isn't it miserable?" And basically going, "Oh, I wish Tom York going. Oh, let's speed it up so that Tom York drowns." Because in the which we'll we'll probably we'll talk, talk about, about the video, it. yeah, yeah. But basically, Kay Burley from Sky News, who I I'm sure both of us are big fans of <laughs> Kay Burley. Uh, she's fucking horrific human being. Yep. Um, but yeah, uh, this song being played in the background, they can't see any kind of jauntiness or happiness in it at all. Um, in 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 its in its morons in its final version, I I I totally understand that. But but um, when you consider that it it was recorded at a faster tempo, I get that Beach Boys comparison. Um, shall we go to a, a happier uh, OK Computer song then? 
Uh, yep. Uh, Airbag seems like uh, one that we should cover. I think inspired oh, by yeah, of course. inspired by an article titled "An Airbag Saved My Life" from an automobile association manual that came in the mail um, mm-hmm. to York. He wrote "Airbag" about the illusion of safety offered by modern transport and the idea that whenever you go out on the road, you could be killed. <laughs> Basically, cheery stuff. The original title was also played on the 1983 in deep song "Last Night a DJ Saved My Life." Um. Right, okay, I didn't mm, know that. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, music journalist and author of the 2007 book Welcome to the Machine, OK Computer and the Death of the Classic Album, Tim Footman. That's a great book, by the way, which I thoroughly recommend. Astutely notes the song's technical innovations and lyrical concerns demonstrate the key paradox of the album as a whole. The musicians and producer are delighting in the sonic possibilities of modern technology, whilst the singer, meanwhile, is railing against its social, moral and psychological impact. It's a contradiction mirrored in the cultural class of the music with the real guitars negotiating an uneasy standoff with the hacked up processed drums. Mm. And as as a album opener, I think it is perfect to introduce you to what the themes of the record are going to be and what this album is going to be, you know? Yeah. Um, absolutely yeah 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 i think you know from the first time you put it on as someone who was a massive fan of the bends um uh, although you talk about the kind of massive stylistic leap between the bends and okay computer i think it was very very clever of radiohead to start with a big guitar riff oh because yeah. because it was quite a nice bridge and quite a nice way of easing you in i mean yeah. obviously when those drums come in that cash cash all that stuff um then you are like oh this is a bit different to what it was last time but certainly starting with a big kind of indie rock guitar riff is a good idea for them it's not as shocking as like the first time you press play on kid a and you're like what Mm, is this mm, fucking mm, orbital or something mm. yeah absolutely i do agree with that although just as a slight counterpoint to that I do think Planet Telex from the Benz and Airbag are fairly similar types of Radiohead songs. Yes, I think they are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think Airbag's better, personally. You may disagree with that and you may not want to go into that right now. No, I don't. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. okay. I love no, I Planet- don't because I don't know. I don't know. I love Planet Telex, but I think Airbag's just a fucking fantastic song. Let's go to something more depressing again. Exit music for a film? Oh, yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, so while on tour with Alanis Morissette in September of 96, Radiohead was sent the last half hour of Baz Luhrmann's film, William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and asked to write a song for the closing credits. Band members were impressed by the clip and Tom wrote the song for the movie. At first, he attempted to use lines from Shakespeare's plays as lyrics, but finally ditched that idea where it proved too difficult. Um, I think that probably would have been a bit much. Yeah, probably, especially <laughs> within it getting on this record as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it wouldn't have fit the rec- this record. I mean, it might have fit the film, but I don't think it would really have worked on a yeah, computer. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the moment in the film where Claire Danes, who plays Juliet, holds a Colt 45 to her head was the actual inspiration for Exit Music. Tom also had the 1968 version of the film in his head. I saw the Zeffirelli version when I was 13 and I cried my eyes out because I couldn't understand why the morning after they shagged, they didn't just run away. The song is written for two people who should, the song is written for two people who should run away before all the bad stuff happens. A personal song. Um, 
it was uh, meant uh, it played over the film's end credits, but it was excluded from the soundtrack album at the band's request. Although talk show host, a um, B-side from the Ben Sessions, does appear mm-hmm. on the soundtrack, I believe. Brilliant does, song. Yeah, yeah brilliant yeah, great song. Um, the song helped shape the direction of the rest of the album, uh, as it was one of the earlier ones recorded. And York said it was the first performance we'd ever recorded where every note of it made my head spin. Something I was proud of. Something I could turn up really, really loud and not wince at any moment. Is this the most depressing song on this record? Yeah. I think it probably is, isn't it? It's pretty despondent. Um, It's very, very despondent. I believe this is the music. This is the song that is played on Father Ted when Tommy (laughs) Tiernan's suicidal... um, Uh, priest character has just been given like a new lust for life by Ted and he gets on a bus all happy and I think it's this song that comes on that makes him want to kill himself. <laughs> I mean that makes think, that makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it is this song. But um is it the yeah, most depressing song in Radiohead's back catalog? I mean it might be one of the most depressing songs of all time. Ever. It is really <laughs> yeah. really bleak this yeah. song. I mean I think it's amazing. I think it's really amazing. And just but to go back, just to go back to sequencing, bleak. just to go back to sequencing quickly, it's track four, four on the record. And yeah, I don't know, track four. Do you want to put a really, really massively depressing song on? Oh, it's, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant song. But yeah, it's very, very depressing. Um, mm. Yeah, it really is. But great. Shall we do one more, one more song? Yeah, sure. Before moving on, okay, the tourist. I would like to talk about because I fucking love it. Uh, It was written by Johnny with lyrics by Tom. He said they were inspired by his experience of watching American tourists in France frantically trying to see as many attractions as possible. He said it was chosen as the closing track because a lot of the album was about background noise and everything moving too fast and not being able to keep up. It was really obvious to have tourists as the last song. That song was written to me from me saying, idiot, slow down, because at that point I needed to. So that was the only resolution there could be to the album to slow it down. Um, it's great. I didn't I didn't know that about that song, but it makes sense. And it is, a, like you say, a perfect album closer. Yeah. And it basically, I always, you know, I didn't know exactly what the inspiration for it was, but it always felt like a total summation of what the record was trying to say it's one last like look let me spell this out yeah 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 exactly that's sort of what i always thought of it it's a bit and it manages to be i see i don't find that song depressing no i don't even though it's kind of quite a little bit like say a little bit confrontational a little bit kind of spiteful like it's actually it's such a beautiful song that it actually feels kind of lovely well, the, sen- um, the sentiment behind it is beautiful. I guess it's, sentiment is lovely. It's yeah. saying, slow down and look at the beauty around you, you know, and mm. take it in. Like, ha- just just take a moment to take in all these breathtaking sights and scenes, you know, rather than trying to just tick them off of a checklist. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, great song. Yeah. yeah. It's a great song. A great way to end the record. I actually, if you don't mind, would like to talk about electioneering a little bit. Oh, that's because... fine. Can I just, I'll just finish off with uh, The Tourist. Um yeah, it's actually a waltz. Um, it's in three, four time. Um, it would make for a very sad waltz, but it is technically a waltz. I imagine most of you listening to this will know what a waltz is, but in case you don't, it's a dance in triple time performed by a couple who has a, t- who has a pair turned sort of 
rhythmically round and round as they progress around the dance floor but if you can you can imagine someone waltzing to this in a very sad waltz kind of way um but i thought that was quite a cool way to end the record because waltzes aren't really used that often in uh quote-unquote rock music no no not really but then there's lots of things in rock music that don't really (laughs) apply to ok computer absolutely Um, yeah and that's not and that's not really true of electioneering. I mean, electioneering to me, as a child, as a child, I was 17 when this came out. I was a child. <laughs> um, as a kid, you know, and someone who loved the bends, I mean, the thing I always loved about the bends is that it can go pretty hard. Like, yeah. we have a very, probably a very different definition of heavy to a lot of people. I would say that OK Computer is a far heavier record than anything Deicide have ever put out. But oh. it's heavy in a completely different way. Um, electioneering is, is rock music in a fairly standard rock music-y kind of way, isn't it? It's the one song, I think, on the album that sounds like an alternative rock stroke indie rock song. If if I want to play a song to people who don't like Radiohead, quote-unquote, to... To, to show them that no they're not just the band who do you know exit music for a film i show them actual electioneering an odd choice to put on the record because to me it stands like as much as i like it i think it was a bloody good idea i mean talking about sequencing again it's a bloody good idea putting that after fitter happier which is so weird it kind of shakes you out of the record for a bit um i think it needs that boost at that point i think it's yeah maybe it, it's yeah. absolutely vital that it needs that boost i think it's debatably the song that sounds most like it could have come from the bends that's what i think yes Mm -hmm. definitely um oh you're probably not like this but i think i think if it were on the bends it might be the best song on it uh no 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 sorry sorry um interesting it focuses on the political and artistic compromise and in in essence, compares the two. So Tom York uses the metaphor of a politician selling his party platform to critique the live promotional shows Radiohead were doing to sell their music. Uh, Ed O'Brien made the connection even more astutely when discussing the promotional cycle of touring, saying, after a while, you feel like a politician who has to kiss babies and shake hands all day long. Mm. And I, I always I always got the idea of it being about p- political sloganeering, but I'm until yeah. I started doing research for this, I didn't realise it was actually a parable with them feeling like they were selling their own record as well. I didn't realise that it was also aimed at themselves. Yeah, um, I didn't know that. Mm, that's mm, good. Yeah, I mean, I, I did take it pretty much at face value, but you know, that's yeah. And if you take it at face value, you still get still mean- works, still works, and you still get meaning out of it. But um, but there are deeper layers in there, which kind of sums up Radiohead as a whole, doesn't it? Mm. I would argue. Yeah. Um, it's funny you talk about, I mean, is that pretty much what you want to say? Apart from that, we should just say that's, that's the record. Yes. Bar, uh, bar, bar that. I mean, I, as I say, I could go into details for every, every song. single song, but I'm also aware of time. Uh, and I don't, and there's, there's still things to say about this record. So, um, yeah. Well, where do you want to go next? Then, I'd like to go to meeting people is easy. All right, fine. Yeah. Cool. Just watch that. Um, Meeting People is Easy is a documentary film released in 1998 by Grant Gee. Gee? G? Grant Gee? Uh, chronicling yeah. Radiohead's exhaustive world tour following the success of their 97 album, OK Computer. The film was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Music Film at the 42nd Annual Grammy Awards in 2000. 
the tour began on the 22nd of May, 97 in Barcelona and ended 104 performances later in New York's Radio City Music Hall. Uh, the film itself includes footage of the filming of the No Surprises music video, the failed studio session for the song Man of War, which was released, li- released later on OK, Not OK, and performances of unreleased songs, including Follow Me Around. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot to talk about with the film, but let's get into the music video for No Surprises, because there's a lot of footage yep. of the video being filmed. As you sort of mentioned, it's a... A single close-up shot of Tom York's head inside an astronaut-style domed helmet. Um, The lyrics of the songs are shown throughout the entire song, slowly scrolling upwards, but mirrored, um, as if they're being reflected off of the dome. And after the first verse, the helmet begins to fill with water. Uh, York continues to sing as he attempts to lift his head above the rising water. Once, Once the helmet completely fills up, he's motionless for over a minute after which the water is released and he resumes singing um it's really uncomfortable watching that footage of them trying to to film that isn't it and tom york gets really really agitated yeah yeah well fair enough (laughs) which yeah which you probably would tom york gets really really agitated and he you can see the more he does it uh the harder it becomes to to get it right yeah Uh, and i mean i've read stuff about how getting panicked and sort of shortens your breath and obviously shortening your breath means that um you're less likely to be able to hold it for as as long and yeah and the kind of the more he failed to do it the kind of harder it would become to do it yeah it's i I think the video you watch it and you go wow fucking hell that's a a cool video but when you watch that footage of him not being able to do it mm. it makes the video even more impressive it's one of the few times where watching the making of something uh actually gives you something genuinely kind of insightful weirdly i since watching meeting people is easy i find it really difficult to watch the no surprises video now because i know yeah what he went through to do it it's like um I I used to enjoy Jaws, but then the opening scene of Jaws, I don't know if you know this, the, you know, rubber shark that they had called Bruce. Uh, the, the first girl who gets eaten by Bruce the shark, um, apparently the mechanical shark, like, knocked into her ribs and broke her ribs and the screams that she's, she's basically genuinely screaming for help because she's broken her ribs. so when you watch that opening scene of the pg rated (laughs) jaws um it's fucking terrifying because that woman is actually screaming please stop filming but they were all so far away from her no they just thought she was acting i've got another one of them if you want it yeah yeah go on slightly more um upbeat one to be honest but michael crawford uh frank spencer in some mothers the other there's a famous honestly this is great yeah if you could you watch it there's a famous um the roller skate uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did all his own stunts yeah you know the roller skate yep. ride yep. through yep. the you know when he he flips at the end he flips into a pram mm. into not to a pram into a cot he goes in through a thing and he flips into a cot he actually broke broke both of his shins Fuck. flipping into the cot so you see him smash if you watch it he goes over head first and he lands shin first onto the cot and he broke both of his shins and that is the the footage you see 
been actually breaking both legs. It's pretty brutal when you see it like that. Um, not that I want to speak. Is, I wonder if some of us who have them and Radiohead have ever been mentioned in the same <laughs> breath before. I think there's going to be a, a few few of those, to be honest. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, it just makes... But yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Yeah. 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 It, it's rough. The, the, the No Surprises video, mm. like seeing that stuff being filmed is is rough. To get back to the documentary film briefly, um, according to director Grant G, uh, Radiohead sat in hotel suites for days giving interviews. To film each interview, G ran around leaving a microphone in one room, going and filming something else in another. He placed surveillance cameras in the band's dressing room, which G said foreshadowed the rise of reality te television. We were doing it in a slightly more arty way, but it's the same as Big Brother, what we were doing with that band, seeing them locked in their bubble. Radiohead Big Brother is what I think of that of that film in a way. Um, you watched it this morning, did you not? I did watch it this morning. Yeah, I've, I watched it a few hours ago. Give me your summation of this film. Oh, it's hard work. It's hard work, man. isn't it? Yeah, it's hard work. It is. I think, like I said at the start, it's basically um, to. I think to understand, we're not doing Kid A at the moment, but I think to understand, to really understand Kid A, you need to watch that film. Because I think what you see is, and I said it to my girlfriend as we were watching it, and she was like, is Tom York, because she said, is Tom York some sort of diva or something? And I said, absolutely not. No. He, to me, he doesn't come across as a diva at all. What happens in Meeting People is Easy is you see five people who are not built or cut out for mainstream mega fame being thrust into being told they are the greatest band of all time and they are just not physically or mentally or emotionally or their personality their souls are not built to be able to cope with being around the type of people that they are now forced to be around to do their job properly mm. um i think it shows yeah it basically shows much like some of the, you know, you, you can you can go on YouTube and watch old footage of Nirvana uh, after Nevermind broke up and you can see them being interviewed on MTV and you can listen to radio interviews and you can see, the, you know, these things. And you can see the sort of the malaise in Kurt Cobain's eyes and you don't quite get and the sort of disdain they have for the people that they're, talk, they're talking to. Um, there's a bit of it on Pearl Jam 10 as well. Yeah. Um, you don't quite get, because Radiohead are British, you they're a little bit more polite than the Americans, I think. And I think what you see in Meeting People is Easy is a band politely doing their best to try and make these people happy who they just cannot understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a brilliant summation, actually. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, it, certainly, if we're to take the Meeting People is Easy film as read and as fact, uh, obviously these things can be distorted, but from that film you definitely get the idea that they really didn't enjoy touring this record at all um and i imagine that probably is the case but um it's a really it's a tough watch as well isn't it it's only an hour and a half but it is a tough old watch well it's very sort of trippy and psychedelic -y mm. and it's not it doesn't really follow a clear narrative structure particularly mm -hmm. other than you know sort of i think trying to recreate the boredom mm. uh, of being on tour trying to kind of recreate the over um exposure to just endless amounts of information and, mm. and things being written about your band you know it does start with q magazine 
giving it the sort of the, the best album ever mm. award or people mm. keeping going, oh you're doing this aren't you it starts with you know all of these uh interviews and all of these things that have been written about the records mm. and it's just they're just flashed up on the screen for you to read and then it's time you, know, you get endless fucking awful stupid journalists mm. asking them awful stupid questions you get photo shoots where tom york looks just so awkward mm. you know there's a scene that actually that i had forgotten about that um where the french label um all of the staff from the french emi come into their dressing room and present the band with it's gone twice gold and they say well, go, it's going to go platinum in the next few weeks but you've sort of gone double gold so here are your records you know here are mm. your kind of double gold records and present you know and they're like this is her from press and this is this from pr and that's her from the marketing and this is the, and there's like 20 people in the dressing room just staring at radiohead and mm. they give them yeah. this sort of you know they give them this frame with these two cd these gold cds in it and they just sort of go, oh. and they just look bemused they, and they look bemused and the first thing johnny greenwood does is turn it around this was something i noticed is turn it around and start taking the the um the back off mm while they're still there and i was like this isn't you know they're not divas they're not horrible people but he just it's like he doesn't even seem to realize socially that you shouldn't you know you or i if we were to do that you'd be given a gold record and even if you didn't give a fuck about it you'd go oh thanks very much yeah, Jeez, yeah that's yeah. really that's really yeah. nice but radiohead they look so awkward i just as think people that, i think at this point they just had sort of stopped caring yeah, you know, and Johnny Greenwood. He's taking the fucking back off the record. Yeah, to yeah. like go. Well, I'll use the frame. Yeah, for something else. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, are yeah. you kidding me, man? They're not even. Yeah. He's just literally handed it to you. Mm. You haven't even looked at it. Yeah, it's, it is. It's hilarious. And you know, I mean, the interview sections they just make me feel just. You just squirm throughout all of them, don't you? Yeah, very much so. I think as a documentary, um, it. it t- if if a documentary is meant to capture a time and a place and give you an idea of what it must have been like, then I think Meeting People is Easy is quite possibly one of the most successful documentaries of all time. Um, but uh, I've watched it. I reckon I've not watched it recently, but I've watched it like three times in my life and I have never once enjoyed it. No. So it's I not... think I think it's brilliant, but I but I don't like it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's hard. Well, I'm, I was like, oh, I think fuck, that's over yeah. by the end of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and, a long hour and a half. <laughs> and and there's there's bits of, you know, the, the times where Tom York sort of is turning around and going, oh, but the thing is, you know, we don't want to make another version of it. You know, basically what you were saying at the start about, you know, if they'd have made the Benz part two, you mm-hmm. could have had all this stuff and they didn't. And even more so now, someone's going, oh, well, you know, when's the next album coming out? And he goes on this massive diatribe about I don't fucking care. I don't. I'm bored of these songs. If we keep making the same thing, that's how they get you. You know, that's how you, you get used to the money. Now we're we're selling those records. Now we're getting loads of money, and they're giving us all this stuff, and then you get indebted to all this stuff. Mm. And I don't want it. That's how they get you. That's how every. And he starts saying, you know, like so many bands that I used to respect have gone to shit because they get caught up and believing that. Oh, this thing that we're doing—if we just keep doing it, we'll, we'll get to keep all this stuff. And he's like, "We're not, you know, we're we're not going to do that." Yeah. And that, to me, I was like, "Okay, well, that is the the birth of what they do with Kid A." 
Absolutely. That's what I felt like. I was like, that's that's Kid A happening right in front of your right eyes. Right in front of your eyes. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. Mm. Um, shall we talk about Glastonbury 1997, Steve? I would absolutely bloody love to, Remco. Okay. I would love to. Let me let me intro this and then I will... Set I will, the scene. I will set the scene. And, uh, uh, yeah, and then we'll move over to you. There... Uh, famed 1997 performance was riddled with mistakes with the band suffering from technical problems. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tom York nearly walked off stage apparently mm, a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, speaking to Joe Riley on BBC Radio 2, O'Brien recalled, it was like a form of hell. We were doing something that was like a dream to play the pyramid stage on a Saturday night. It doesn't get better than that. But to find yourself in a situation whereby it felt like we were in crisis mode, the equipment failure was happening, we were trying to keep all the members on stage and have people not walk off. It was like, this should be a heaven, but we're in some kind of hell. Uh, Tom York recently discussed how it, he came close to walking off the stage during the set. He spoke about how he nearly abandoned the performance during the encore because all the speakers had been blowing up. At one point, I just went over to Ed. I tapped him on the shoulder and said, I'm off, mate. See you later. He turned around and went, if you do, you'll probably live the rest of your life regret regretting it. So I said, good point and carried on. Uh, York also admitted that he initially didn't want to perform at Glastonbury at all. I'd burnt myself out, he said. We had a meeting about what we were going to do for the shows and I was like, I can't do Glastonbury. I just needed a break. And in fact, I didn't get one for another year and a bit, by which point I was pretty much catatonic. So that was Radiohead's experience of Glassbury 97. But Steve... That's mad, isn't it? Because there was only a month after the album came out. I know, I know. Uh, but Steve, you were actually there, weren't you? I was, mate. I was there. What um, are your recollections of that set? Glastonbury 90... Well, let me just sort of preface it mm -hmm. with what Glastonbury 1997 was. Glastonbury 97 was um, hugely hyped because it was the year... Um, I think it was only the second or third time that they'd had a year off. So ah, they do okay. it fairly regularly now. But 1996, Glastonbury did not happen. Um, so in 1997... Uh, there was a lot of speculation as to who was going to be playing Glastonbury. Um, we had the Prodigy headlining the Pyramid Stage on the Friday night. The Prodigy, had... as far as I'm aware, were were tipped as going to be the band of the weekend before Very everything so. happened. Mm -hmm. And um, apparently they were okay? They were very good but okay. it's probably my least favorite time seeing the prodigy for reasons which i'll explain at the moment okay. in a moment um the sunday night it was meant to be steve winwood uh subbing special guests and the special guests were rumored uh, as you know before the internet um was really a big big thing uh we got a lot of campsides kind of info about who the special guests were going to be um apparently it was going to be michael jackson apparently it was going to be the rolling stones apparently it was going to be oasis apparently it was going to be prince apparently it was going to be madonna um in the end steve winwood pulled out and we got a run of sting followed by cooler shaker followed by ash cooler shaker and ash had both oh, played dear. on the second stage uh, earlier in the weekend because glastonbury 1997 was an absolute mud filled fucking shit tip and <laughs> your favorite I, environment for a festival i i i hate uh muddy fest and i think it all stems back to my experience at glastonbury 1997 oh really because i i <laughs> am not sure that i've ever really gotten over that it was it was and it's not anymore but it was the worst weather and the worst 
experience at a festival in terms of the stuff surrounding it that I have ever experienced until wow. download 2000 and um, download 2016 came along and stole its crown. Right. 2016, yeah, yeah, download 2016, which is just was unfucking believable. Um, but yeah, uh, so I turned up Friday morning at Glastonbury and it was like the trenches in world war one but with bucket hats it was (laughs) fucking unbelievable and me and my friend debbie went and we managed to pitch our tents uh a massive massive walk like probably about a mile walk away from the pyramid stage up a hill um just next to like a sleuth a river of mud um pitch a tent got there early it was raining um it kind of stopped raining for a little bit and we got to watch the Friday um, for the most part. We saw Terrorvision and Echo and the Bunnymen and the Levelers. And uh, then we got news that the second stage, the other stage, and this is back in the day where it was basically, there was a comedy tent and a cabaret tent and there was a, a dance tent, but it was the other stage and the pyramid stage were the only two stages where sort of major musical acts were performing. Right. And like the jazz, there was like the jazz world stage as well. Um, but... Yeah, in terms of like the big, big acts, it was just those two stages and that was it. The other stage was cordoned off because it sank. So half of the bands that played the other stage um, didn't actually get to play. Uh, So we just took up a position near the front of the pyramid stage from, I would say, 11 o'clock in the morning through to the Prodigy and watched everyone. By the time I... By the time I got back to In the Mud, in the in the Prodigy set also, they came on late. After two songs, the power went uh. and they had to go off stage for about 20 minutes and Dennis Pennis came on and tried to entertain people in the audience. Oh, dear. Is, you know, he's funny when he's giving Barry Manilow a big handkerchief, but he's not so funny when uh, sure. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's on yeah. stage at Glastonbury. Yeah. Um, by the time I got back to my tent at what would have been one o'clock in the morning, um, I was physically fucked my legs were i'd been stood up for you know 14 hours in the same position in the mud i traipsed through the mud i was absolutely fucked what it meant was on the saturday i didn't see anything i just slept in my tent all fucking day and funnily enough on the saturday the sun came out and it didn't rain anymore <laughs> right so it was actually quite a nice day um i think i got up for a little bit and went down and saw somebody but i was just <clears throat> knackered even <clears throat> at 17 it was like it took it out of me but i was determined to see radiohead um radiohead was subbed by ocean color scene right imagine that <laughs> yeah 2020 well they uh, the, riverboat, <laughs> the riverboat song was massive at that time right yeah day we caught the train it was all that all that stuff going on yeah so um uh, i i sort of planned to go and see the chemical brothers on the other stage before radio had played but i didn't do that um i took up a position not massively close to the stage because i'd learned my lesson from the night before um about sort of 15 20 minutes before radiohead came on and then they came on and i'm sure they didn't have a great time there and i'm sure you know all of the stuff because it was a disaster as a as a as a weekend you know it was a fucking disaster um they were incredible like the they changed the atmosphere in the field um they changed the sort of the molecules in the in the air it was it was unbelievable and 
like I said, they opened with Lucky. Yeah. And I was 17 and every band <clears throat> that I had gone to see, I mean, probably literally every band that I'd been to see at that point came on and went, yeah, all right, we're whoever. This is the fucking, let's go. And they <laughs> opened with a big one. They come so on and go, with, I'm on a roll. Yeah. I was just like, so I thought they're going to open with Creep. They're going to open with, you know, the Benz. They're going to open with Electioneering or Airbag or something. Do you know what I mean? That's what I thought. And they opened with Lucky. And I was like, holy shit. They're yeah. opening with yeah. that weird slow song off yeah, of yeah, the yeah. fucking Help album that I was a bit like about. Mm. And it, I'd just never seen a band try and do that before. I'd never seen a band with the confidence. And you are headlining the pyramid stage at Glastonbury <clears throat> for the first time. Um, I, in terms of set list, I don't remember all of it perfectly, but... Um, do you want me to uh, recite mean, it? I'll recite it to you. Yeah, yeah. Because, get, get it out. Get it out. Uh, because for yeah, a I know fan, they played my own lung, which I love. For, for a fan of Radiohead's early works, this set list is pretty much perfect. If you're yeah, the type was, of Radiohead yeah. fan who stops at um, OK Computer or even the Benz, actually, um, this is pretty perfect. So it was Lucky, My Iron Lung, Airbag, Planet Telex, Exit Music, The Benz, Nice Dream, Paranoid Android, Karma Police, Creep. Climbing Up the Walls, No Surprises, Talk Show Host, Bones, Just, Fake Plastic Trees, You, The Tourist, High and Dry, Street Spirit. Yeah. That is, that is, in terms of early Radiohead, that is pretty perfect. Yeah. I mean, I, I it's, they did everything that I wanted them to do, basically, at yeah. that time. And yeah, they got the <clears throat> set list so right and they sounded so great. And I just remember seeing Johnny Greenwood freaking out on his guitar and being like, wow, mm. again, that's not something you see with new metal. You don't really like, which I was going to see a lot of, or pop mm. punk or skate mm. punk or whatever, the sort of bands that I was going to watch at that time. It was an entirely different live experience to anything that I'd really ever seen before. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, incredible. And I went back to my tent and I felt like the difference between going back to my tent from the prodigy, where it was like, let's all jump around and go crazy in the mud and try to stand up and stuff to mm. that set of Radiohead just standing stock still as close to the sort of um, mixing desk as I could get. And just feeling like people were being kind of sucked towards stage slowly but surely. Um, yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. I've read reports that there was a real turning point um at one point tom york uh asked the lighting guy to turn the lights on the audience yeah because um he basically said he, i can't see any of these people like i've been playing i, I was it's around halfway through the set i can't remember which song it is now um but it's around the halfway point and he just says can someone just turn the lights on to this crowd because i can't see anyone and this massive roar erupts it's absolutely it's spine tingling actually yeah that moment. he actually described that as being a feeling that is not something that is like it is inhuman he mm. said the feeling that he got from that is not something that a human being should ever uh, can really comprehend yeah yeah um uh, as research for this, I sat down and watched all of Radiohead's Glastonbury performances um, from the comfort of my Decent. home in YouTube. Um, yeah. It was a bloody good time, uh, to say the least. Um, 
I think because I, I I thought this was wonderful. Um, I didn't. I think all of the Radiohead Glastonbury uh, performances are wonderful in in one sense or another. Um, it's not my favourite purely of the ones I saw purely because for me, because I like Radiohead's entire spread, uh, the entire spread of their career, there's just so much, so many songs missing. But as I said beforehand, if you are one of those fans and there's fucking loads of them out there who like just goes up to OK Computer, this is pretty much the perfect Radiohead set, I would say. Yeah, I mean, because of what I love. I have a great deal of love for a lot of other Radiohead material, but the, this was the this was this is absolutely the sweet spot for me. We should. So bear I in, do still look back on it and be like, oh. Wow. We should. We should bear in mind that I'm looking at it through the benefit of hindsight and knowing that, and obviously, you know, you had not heard the national anthem at that point. You hadn't heard everything in its right place. You hadn't heard Pyramid Song because those songs mm. didn't exist at that point. But yeah. you know, that just just saying, sort of twenty three years on. I totally understand why this is considered one of the best festival sets of all time. I get it. Um, but that, that would just be, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dissing it at all. I thought it was brilliant, but that, that would be the only thing I would say about it. But yeah, it is amazing. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, fantastic. you know, if I want to see Radiohead now and they just played stuff off the bends and OK Computer, I'd probably be really happy, but I'd also probably go, yeah, but you yeah, know, come on. Yeah, it would be like it would be like like I would go and see Deftones, <clears throat> and if they just played stuff off like the first time I saw Deftones, they just played stuff off around the fur and adrenaline, mm, mm. and I would love to go and see them again and see them do that. But I also, there's no way that I'd go. Oh, they should do that all the time. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Agreed. So I get what you're saying, but it was amazing. And as a first go at headlining a festival, oh it's, yeah, <sighs> astonishing, unreal. They look like they belong there despite all the technical problems and despite the frustrations and despite their very clear annoyance at the things that are going wrong, they look like they belong there. Absolutely. Um, 20 years later, there was a reissue, um, which you have on vinyl, I believe. Okay, not okay. I do, yes. Um, And there are some good songs, which I think are worth mentioning on there. I I particularly like Man of War, A Reminder, Polythylene, Mm -hmm. Parts 1 and 2. Uh, and Paolo Alto. Are there any others that you'd like to point out? Well, actually, I mean, I was going to say the the okay, not okay reissue on vinyl, or well, you can get it on CD as well. But the um the kind of B sides, eight B sides, uh, three unreleased tracks, very very good. You can tell. I think you can tell why some of them were left as B sides, as I think it is more Benzy era material. I feel like funnily personally. funnily like, enough, I was I, I was going to lead into that. I was going to ask you why do you think these songs were taken off, and I was going to say I think it's because they sound like the Benz era rather than yes. I mean, era. I I love a reminder. I think yeah, that's it's absolutely brilliant. brilliant, and that's got some Brian May from Johnny Greenwood on it. That's got some proper like guitar parts on it. Um, I think Lift is kind of weird. It's got a weird start, but once it gets mm-hmm. going again, um, I think it's probably the best one of the unreleased ones. Um, got some you know that's obviously when they'd got the Hammond organ in and we're having a proper go on the Hammond organ yeah. but again I think it would fit much better on the bends rather than yep. OK Computer the only one I think that would fit on OK Computer personally is um, How I Made My Millions which mm-hmm. is quite post-rock yep. I mean that's got a, that dub Bristol thing that obviously was a big influence on them at the time um, and it's an instrumental as well so I think yeah potentially could have found um space for that if they'd wanted to but i don't think the album loses anything by not having it on it but it is a cool song no, and it's probably the thing that's most 
the, the easiest link between the two. That's what I think anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but again, you know, I mean, if you're listening to this and, and you stop at the beds in terms of um, the Radiohead stuff that you like, uh, that reissue is definitely worth the second half of that reissue is definitely worth checking out because, yeah, as, mm. as we've both pointed out, those songs sounds very, very Benzy. And I think that is yeah. in terms of quality, the songs are great. They just I just but I totally understand why they didn't make it to the album itself. There is one more important thing um to um uh talk about with this record and then um, we shall move on to part two um mm. mini discs hacked uh yeah. as as this is the title that this um uh leak has been given on june the 5th 2009 mini disc recordings that had been taken from the okay computer sessions were leaked online they contained over 17 hours of demos, rehearsals, outtakes and live performances. They included unreleased songs, alternative mixes and early versions of OK Computer songs, such as an extended version of Paranoid Android, not the 14 minute one, although it isn't the eight minute one that I sort of alluded to earlier. Uh, it's, right. All right. it's all right. Um, and versions of later songs such as Lift, where which was put on OK, Not OK, True Love Waits, Nude, Last Flowers, Motion Picture Soundtrack, and Life in a Glass House. Now, True Love Waits appeared on a moon-shaped pool, which is the last Radiohead record. So it's really interesting to see how something that I find really interesting about Radiohead is the gestation period for some of their songs. Mm -hmm. You know, True Love Waits, I believe, was written around the bends, and it didn't finally make it onto an album until 2017. So that album took 22 years. There's a... A song that was written around this time that will ended up on In Rainbows. Exactly, right? N- nude. So yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So nude ended up on In Rainbows, which we'll discuss uh, in part two. Motion picture soundtrack was the last track on Kid A, and Life in a Glass House was the last track on Amnesiac. So yeah, it's very interesting how that gestation period happens. Um, the recordings were taken from mini discs belonging to Radiohead singer Tom York and leaked online by a collector who claimed to have traded them for unreleased Beatles recordings. Uh, they may have been stolen whilst archiving. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> they may have been stolen whilst uh, archiving material was being prepared for the OK Computer reissue. According to this is where it gets really interesting. According to conflicting reports, the thief had initially demanded a $150,000 ransom from Radiohead not to release the recordings. However, according to an investigation by Pitchfork, the thief, who used the name Zimbra, had instead hoped to sell them to fans. Zimbra told Pitchfork that the whole 150k thing and ransom was taken way out of context doesn't deny it though interestingly a fan who negotiated with zimbra said he did not believe extortion was intent he never told us anything to suggest he was trying to get money from the band only from fans zimbra released the recordings free after news broke on the discussion site reddit what i love about this whole saga is radiohead's response um which i think is the classiest response to this kind of thing happening ever basically in a statement guitarist johnny greenwood explained we got hacked last week someone stole tom's mini disc archive from around the time of OK computer and reportedly demanded one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on threat of releasing it so instead of complaining much or ignoring it we're releasing all 18 hours on Bandcamp in aid of extinction rebellion just for the next 18 days so for 18 pounds you can find out if we should have paid that ransom Never intended for public consumption, though some clips did reach the cassette and the OK Computer reissue. It's only tangentially interesting and very, very long. It's not a phone download. 
raining out, isn't it? Uh, so they try to just basically dismiss the thing and be like, look, if you want to check this out, fucking check it out and we'll give money to charity. But, you know, it's not that interesting. In a brief note attached to the Bandcamp page, York summed up the band's reasoning. As it's out there, it may as well be out there until we get bored and move on. Um, I haven't listened to all it's actually 17 hours 17 minutes and 15 seconds or something like that you know how i like to be pedantic with times um but everyone reported it as 18 hours because it fit very well in with the 18 days and the 18 pounds i've listened to bits and pieces of it and it is exactly what it sounds like it is the it's rehearsal footage and live takes and and sometimes they they start and stop songs and there's lots of conversation and chatter it doesn't make for a cohesive listening spirit experience at all because it's not designed to be it's it's literally it's notes this is the musical equivalent Mm. of notes um and you know um but that bands used to return to and go okay what did we do on this take well we like this bit and we like that bit but you know i want to take this bit away from that and etc etc um if you're obsessed with Radiohead and you're a musician and you want to hear how this record came to be and how it mutated and gestated over the period of those nine months, it's a fascinating document. Uh, it's fascinating to listen to and it's fascinating to hear how these songs changed and the different versions of these songs. There's, you know, four or five different takes of Paranoid Android on there, all of which are pretty different. Um there's an acoustic rendition of Nude, which appeared on In Rainbows, which we'll talk about later, which is very, very different to the original. You know, there's all sorts of stuff on here. And fans, I mean, Radiohead fans being as um, passionate as they are, have made like a Google docu- document where it tells you every single song that's on it. Because unfortunately, the other thing which makes this a difficult thing to listen to is the tracks are just releases. One, each mini disc is just one long track. They haven't been split up into individual tracks and all this kind of thing. Yeah, you get like 70 minutes of one track, don't you? Exactly, exactly. <sighs> uh, so it's, you know, it's a hell of a monumental task um, to go through it all and, and listen to it. But, you know, it's really, really interesting. I mean, we're, we're recording this, probably come out during the COVID-19 stuff i mean if you're ever going to sit down and listen to that kind of thing this is probably the time to do it um and certainly it's as i say it's a fascinating insight into the creative process but yeah it's very 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 clear that these were not intended to be listened to outside of the band's very private close circle i imagine Mm. i imagine um the band themselves maybe a manager obviously nigel godridge and maybe stanley donwood the artist involved but outside of that i doubt anyone else is meant to listen to these things and i mean to be honest with you i've got absolutely no interest in listening to them to be perfectly honest winfrey they're not meant for me um i'm sure they're interesting if you are trying to look at it from you know, uh, a, a little peek behind the curtain, but I don't need a, a 17 hour peek behind a curtain. Well, yeah, quite. So I'm a little bit like, uh, it was only in the sort of build up to this, I even realized that was a thing. It completely passed me by when they got released. Um, probably because I was a bit tech 
sick mm. back in 2009. <laughs> um, oh, oh, no, this but, is 2019. This is last oh, 2019. year. 2019. Yeah, oh, yeah. okay. Sorry, this is 2009. 2019. Oh, right. Okay, well, then I just missed it completely. Yeah, I mean, but still not interested, really. Uh, I think I'll, I'll give that a swerve. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I would... I I think for musicians who who love this album and love love this band, it would be a very interesting thing to listen to. But otherwise, no, not particularly. Um, and that's pretty much the end of in com- uh, in computer. Fucking hell, I've done it again. Okay, computer. I think yes. So, I think it is. I think you're quite right. So um, there you go. Uh, do you want to kind of sum up Okay Computer very very briefly, or do you want to do all that oh, at the end? Blimey, it's really fucking good. Let's do it all at the end. <laughs> okay fair enough all right well listen thank you very much for listening um i think this is going to be the lot even longer than the bloody pink floyd one which i thought was (laughs) going to be the ultimate long one um but that is the end of part one me and renfrey chatting about radiohead's okay computer we will be back to um to bring you part two which will feature us talking extensively about the second part of the zero one ten album that this podcast is meant to be about (laughs) that is in rainbows and then we will get to the actual playlist which is uh the album that renfrey has picked and that's all coming in part two thanks very much for listening again and thanks very much for subscribing again and we'll see you in part two cheery bye